was a cowboy I knew in South Texas. His face was burnt deep by the sun. Welcome to the Eat, Slay, Live podcast. And we are the Loxicutioners. We're going to be eating lightning and talking thunder and running buck 40 right into your ear holes today. Talking trash. Talking trash. Let's just get right to it. Well, I don't think we have much of a choice because he's already jumped in. I mean, so Ross, you know, we talked about... Hey, listen, I said talking trash. You act like everyone knows that you're talking about me. Here. So, Ross, so... We, we we talked about not too long ago about how like a lot of our guests are successful people and they always get here early. Do you know what I'm saying? They're always on time. Professionals. You know, professionals. They're professionals. Okay. Now Jonah, I mean, arguably might be one of our most success, most successful guests. Okay. He was here an hour and fifteen minutes early. <laughs> now what is that? Was that was that tell you? I mean, are you going to start getting places earlier, Ross? Or no. yes, yes, yes. Yeah, I'm motivated. I mean. <laughs> I sent you a text about uh, about Jonah on my way here, or when I was at home. I think I just got up from a nap or something, and I said something. I go, and you go, uh, he's already here. <laughs> when we first walked in, I go, fuck, Todd fucked up. <laughs> God damn it, I was rattled. I was trying to get my shit done quick. Well, that, that's another story, Ross, because for the first time in, in, in the uh, Eat, Slay, Live podcast history, I messaged Jonah and I said, Hey, you know about doing our podcast? Oh, sure. You know, I'd love to do it. Blah, blah, blah. We're talking. He's like, well, here's my secretary's number. Call her and schedule. I'm like, damn, Ross, we just got big time. I mean, this, big time. You know, no one's love ever it. told us we got to call her secretary. <laughs> I have no organizational skill. <laughs> Zero. And, and so Ross and I think we're cool. And I'm like, you know what? Am I actually going to call someone's secretary? And sca-? I'm like, yeah, yeah. Damn right I'm, you are. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. So uh, we're just going to jump in because he's already jumped in. Uh, our guest, uh, his name is Jonah White, um, has an incredible story. Ross, I don't think you know much about it, right? No, hardly no. anything. Exactly. He comes from Calhoun County, which we, we've talked about Calhoun on here a lot. It's kind of where our roots started. Uh, Calhoun is a little county in Illinois of about, I don't know, 2,000 people, something like that. Uh, that's yeah, a it's a, I think if you, you count dogs and cats, it's about 5,000. <laughs> well, and, and most of those live at your house. Yes, a lot of them do. And so Jonah has an incredible story. Um, I want to get get right to it with him. Um, so Jonah, welcome to the show. What a pleasure to be here in, <laughs> in the brick house. I love it. Ross, do you think he's lying? <laughs> no, I now, felt that. Now before before we start this, so you know I do research. My job is to research and do everything for the show, and your job is to con- turn the computer on. Yep. So, you know, I messaged some people about Jonah and said, hey, do you know, you know, some things I might have missed and said, hey, do you have any stories about him? Something we can ask him about, things like that. So one of the people that I uh, talked to was his old football coach. Now, Jonah, we'll get into this, but Jonah was a was a terror on the football field, a terror, Ross. OK, so I and, and I think that his head coach, Rick Johns, Hall of Fame coach. Uh, was kind of like a mentor to Jonah, if I'm if I'm correct, and they still talk today. So I, I text Coach Johns, and he's pretty animated. Okay, so this is the text he sends me back. Are you ready for this, Ross? Just gonna, just gonna read the text. I'm just gonna, I, dude. I, I okay. to do it justice, I okay. have to read it. Gotcha. Okay, okay. This is what he says: Semifinal, 1987 at home versus Lexington, a rude and cocky lot that invaded the kingdom with thoughts of intimidation and conquest. The Minutemen were proud. <laughs> 
of de- their defense, to say the least. With 12 games in the books, they had yet to allow an opposing runner more than 90 yards rushing. They were looking forward to facing Jonah. So much, in fact, that they modified the cadence of their pregame warm-up to hit Jonah 1, hit Jonah 2, hit Jonah 3, etc. So after about five minutes of this tactic, I called Jonah over to sidelines, put my arm on his shoulder, and he had just stand eyes fixed on our rude guests and their attempt to shake our confidence. I look at Jonah and say, hey, I don't care if we win or lose, you better get 100 yards today. With zero hesitation, Jonah says, coach, I'm getting 200 against these fuckers. <laughs> His rushing total for the day was 298 yards. Had I known he was close to 300, I would have played him a down or two uh, our last series to get him to 300. <laughs> so how's that, Ross? That's a fucking story. <laughs> That's why I had, I had to read it. I could not do that no, justice. No, you could not do that I justice. Mean, I'm not going to lie. The first time I read it, it gave me chills. I got chills. And, and it gave me chills this time. I'm like, <laughs> handing him the ball. Man, he had, uh, Coach Johns has some words. Right? I mean, he right? uses his words well. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> really he's, a, he's an it. artist like on the on the page and artist with his words. Wow. I, I, and cool I'm gonna, story. Before we hop, so I remember, you know, I was a sophomore, a little puny sophomore, and Jonah was a senior. And, and I remember we were at an away game. Man, I don't know where it was, like Arcola or Assumption or something like that. And it was halftime. And, and Jonah, man, he was Jonah was built. I mean, he was built like a brick shit house, okay? And Mohawk, he started the whole Mohawk thing. No, we'll there. get into that. Yeah, up there. And so I remember Jonah has his pads off. And he just looks like he's, it's halftime. It looks like he's already, you know, been in a war. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Blood and mud and guts and everything just hanging all over the place. And, and you know, coach is talking. And Jonah's like, coach. Just give me the ball until they can't stop me. I'm gonna make mincemeat out of them. And dude, and I'm like, I'm, a, I'm dude, I'm a little, I'm like a little kid at this point. Yeah. In sophomore year, I'm skinny <laughs> and I'm just sitting there watching this, you know, half scared. And dude, he used the word, and I still remember how many ever years ago he used the word mincemeat. Do <laughs> you I, remember that? No, I, I'm sure he remembers saying something to the effect, but maybe not the word mincemeat. Mincemeat. Yeah. But I will, because you know, you're a little kid. You know, you look up to those yeah. guys as like the you know, star. Stars, you yeah. know, and so I always remember mince meat. <laughs> <laughs> Even though we were probably all eating brown swagger up there. So Jonah, hey, welcome to the show, brother. We super appreciate you yeah. coming down here. I know you're a busy, busy guy. Yeah. Um, so we're gonna kind of get right into it. You know, uh you weren't born in Calhoun County. Nope. No, nope. I was we're, born up in Chicago. And up in Chicago, mm-hmm. like city of suburbs. Yeah, we um my family uh, was was um, kind of a migrant bunch of gypsies, and we lived in a uh, um, we lived in a little tiny white house. Uh, it was a two story, real small house, and I saw it one time when I was probably about second or third grade. I remember in the back of a car, uh, my mom drove by by this house, and she said, "Jonah, you were born right up on the other side of that window up there." And, uh, in the house. In the, in this house, as you, uh, I remember seeing it one time when we drove past it. But, but yeah, we we my my family, um, pretty different. Uh, my father was from a Indian reservation, basically in Oklahoma. Yep. And, my, and uh, he met my mom at a and a uh, protest actually in 1958 in Cheyenne, Wyoming. 
protesting the first nuclear inter- intercontinental missile base. Really? Now, yeah. is your mom, she wasn't Native American. No, correct? my mom was not. No, she was, uh, she, her family was uh, Jews in Germany, and they, uh, they got out before Hitler, Hitler got into power. They saw the writing on the wall, and they were, they were uh, financially successful. So they had the luxury of getting to the United States. She was born in Chicago in 1936, right when Hitler got elected. So, I, I mean, you think of bringing two persecuted groups together, the Native Americans yeah. and then the Jewish, yeah, Jew- I know. Uh, Jewish I know. Nazis. Wow. I got it. I got it from all the way around. I got strengths and weaknesses everywhere. I just got to <laughs> mix them all together. So, uh, were, you so guys, yeah. were you guys kicked out of Chicago? Uh, no, actually, we weren't. Believe it or not, my dad left for a job. Um, um, so my dad built the Pawnee Earth Lodge. If you've ever been to the to the Field Museum in Chicago, my dad was the curator of the Native American wing of the of the museum. I spent many many days as a little tiny kid, not in school, but wandering through the through the exhibits in the museum. I've got great memories of that and. Uh, my dad built the Pawnee Earth Lodge there in probably 1974-75, and about 1978, um, the Campsville Archaeological Program was doing an, uh, do, was doing a workshop there, and they persuaded my dad to leave uh, leave Chicago and to move his family in a school bus down to Calhoun County, Illinois. So, so when you say Campsville, for our listeners don't know, Campsville is a town. Up in Cal- the little area of Calhoun County, so Campsville at the time was probably about four hundred people. Yeah, so, yeah. so you guys are leaving like the the, the museum. And you're from Campsville. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I remember you growing up. Yeah. yeah. Cougars. Yeah. Cougars for life. Yeah. That was us. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, they they left Chicago, the yeah. museum up there, to come down to mm-hmm. little Campsville, and yeah. came in a in a school bus. Yeah, we lived in a school bus behind a bank, uh, the summer of nineteen seventy eight. And uh, behind the bank at Campsville, and I and uh, we actually um, we actually had sheep with us, and we we had about twelve sheep living in the school bus. And I remember me and my younger brother looking out the windows at like the people, like dumbfounded, like looking at the like, like did I just see like a little boy and a a sheep, you know? And uh, and I remember um, just you know how out there it is when you think about it. Like our bus, like the the front half of the bus was full of books, uh-huh. and the back half of like it was like quarantine. The back half was like straw and sheep, and then me and my younger brother, and uh, um, and that's that's that was how we moved uh, to the great Calhoun County, now where how, I have not left. Now, how how why did they choose like the bus? I mean, you were living in a house up there. How do they choose? How well, do they choose the school bus? You to... know, there's a lot of questions, Todd. I've asked, <laughs> or, or, you know, <laughs> and uh, I'll give you the, you know, you, you, you pretty much know the answer. So a lot of what my family has done growing up and still to this day, doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, yeah. <laughs> you know, I think normal, I learned this from my parents or it was just embedded in my DNA. You know, normal isn't really, fun you know it kind of sucks and when i find myself being normal i I gotta take it up a notch (laughs) and and, uh and so i i i've i just that's my mindset and i got that from my parents did the did the sheep did you have sheep in chicago uh north of chicago we lived on a we lived on a uh, like uh next to a park 
and uh, we had a, like a big yard. Gotcha. And my parents had sheep from Scotland. Um, my 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 father had a you know his Native American ancestors, and most of his ancestors came from Scotland. And uh, my dad was his common ancestor from Scotland was also named John White, and he was a Jacobite. And he was in, involved in the Jacobite uprising of 1749, where they were crushed by the the English crown, <laughs> and um, and they were slaughtered, and um, the survivors uh, were locked up in the Tower of London, most of them. And my father and many others were sent to the colonies in the United States as a slave. So actually, my father's Scottish heritage came from a white slave that was sent to the Carolinas in 1749. Not all slaves are black. So like most of our listeners out there, like I feel very, like I don't know shit about my family now. Right. <laughs> yeah, just, right. yeah. That's awesome that you know, know your well, background I'm, so much. I, you know, I, I, um, I, I have to admit, Ross, I'm, I haven't done this diligence myself. My father did a lot of this genealogy, and, and he taught me this at an early age, to be proud of where you're from and to be proud of you know who you are. And uh, even if that person is, was a white slave um, from Scotland, you know, be proud of that. You know, we, and my father had a little saying that we didn't descend from losers. Like, the losers died off. Like, we're the winners. And, and that's, there's a, so much truth to that. Yeah. And, People um, would be a lot better off if they used that mindset. I know. Instead of still trying to be, you know, feel mm -hmm. like they're still yes. like a loser. Yes. Like, hey, our, we're the ones that survived. Yeah, should, I know. Yeah, yeah. And we're here. I love yeah. that. I love that. Yeah. yeah. I know. There's a lot. There's always other layers to look at of things. Um, you, I try to, you know, I I try to see things and think about things in three or four dimensions. Don't just take things on the surface. Don't just read like the headline and like think you know what's going on. You don't. And even if you take one page and go to like the second level or the third level, you still really don't know. You really you need to. It's not until you get towards the end of the book that you actually know what the book's about. People don't get that. They think yeah. you just look at the cover or just look at the distributor who's selling the book and you think you know something. And so anyway, I, I learned, I think a lot of it is just challenging what authority or what has been put in front of you, which I got from my parents for sure, from both of them. Um, like I said, they, they actually met in jail in Cheyenne, Wyoming. Oh, it was in jail. In, in wow. August, yeah, they got thrown in jail at this <laughs> protest. And I actually went there uh, about two years ago to the jail, and actually, oh. I actually walked into the jail where they met and, and saw the, the cell. Yeah. And uh, one of the one of the policemen that was there was a woman. Actually, she was good enough to take me down to show me where the jail was at the Laramie County Correctional uh. Facility in 1958, because it's not used as a jail anymore. But I could see the cell where they met, and here I remember them describing it while my parents were alive, where they actually met. That's and I actually went to the actual spot where they met. That's awesome. Yeah, that's pretty cool. cool. Now, I know it went, you guys didn't stay on the bus forever. I know at one point no. you guys did move to, it was kind of more like a log cabin, right? Yeah. Now, now yeah. Ross, let me tell you this. So, I mean, when, like when I was really small, we were, we were pretty poor. You know what I'm saying? Everybody in Calhoun back then was, yeah. you know what I'm saying, wasn't very well off. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But I remember going to Jonah's house, and they had like a dirt floor. And outdoor plumbing, and I remember thinking, "Do you really? Yes. When did you come to my house? Ah, man, I don't. I came there with my mom, my grandma. I don't oh know. yeah, okay, oh yeah, okay. And so I remember going there and being like, 
Because, uh, like, back then, you didn't really know if you were poor. Like, just up in Calhoun, it's just a different yeah. sort of you world. You saw us. You know He's poor. And I saw him, like, okay, you know what? We are doing a little better than them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, they, but they were also just sort of a free-living people. Yeah, like, yeah, here like, in the like store speaking now, of, like, but... the goats and stuff, like, there was just animals, like, just sort of coming. Like, I remember being in the kitchen, and, like, like a goat just, like, walking by, you know? Yeah, yeah. Here in his background a little bit now, it doesn't surprise me that. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, just, I mean his dad. I think you know, it's just his background. Yeah. Exactly. Wasn't your dad, your dad... If I remember this, his dad name was name was known as Five Bears. Five Bears, yeah. yeah so that, yeah, that, was, that was his Cherokee name. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. and I remember like in grade school, uh, his dad and mom would come and they would because they were they went up there with the archaeological uh, program. Um, you know, archaeology was really big up in Calhoun. People would come from like different colleges around, like yeah, the United States, yeah. and they would live. They had like some dorms or cabins mm-hmm. or something. They would yeah. live there and and study for the summer and thing. And we'd call them Arkies. Yeah, that's what it was. Arkies, it was yeah. And it was almost up there because you know Calhoun's a little closed mind, and these yeah. people were kind of free spirited, hippie ish mm-hmm. sort of people, and like. Arkies, when you call them Arkies, it was kind of like a like a slang, wasn't mm-hmm. it? Did yeah, you kind of feel yeah. that way? Like, yeah. oh, there's those, 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 those damn Arkies. There's a busload of Arkies you right know, there. And, and it'd be like dudes with long hair and just, mm-hmm. just hippie type yeah. people back then, you know? What, what was the draw to, to Calhoun County? Well, what it was, was it was the it was the epicenter of uh, American archaeology in the 70s and 80s. It had a huge it had a huge um, field school program run by Northwestern University. And so if you were an archaeology student in the United States or you wanted, you were aspiring to be an archaeologist, Campsville, Illinois was like the epicenter. And, um, and so it was, and this organization called the Campsville Archaeology Organization, they, um, they actually recruited up my family and they brought us there and, you know, for like $6 an hour. So my, we, we moved, we moved there and, uh, six of us lived in a 12 foot Shasta trailer, uh, after we got out of the school bus mm-hmm. in, um, in, in the summer of 1979, right before the flood hit. So it was pretty cool. So, uh, yeah, it was just a great upbringing. And then, uh, my dad was able to, put a down payment down on 40 acres about five miles away with an old log cabin on it which had been used for a barn uh, for, <laughs> for cows for who knows how long the, the cabin was built in the 1840s wow. so we we renovated this and um and Let, we let's, moved. Put, let's put renovated in quotes yeah renovated okay. <laughs> yeah so uh so uh it was it was a great you know we had a well outside that we got our water from and my mom put her foot down um I remember I was in about fifth grade. She put mm-hmm. her foot down that she didn't like going outside to get water in the wintertime. So we we, um, we adapted, and we went to digging a well into the kitchen. <laughs> so uh, me and my brothers dug about a 10-foot deep hole in our kitchen floor so we could have water in the wintertime, wouldn't freeze over. Is that great? great. Is that great? The lap of luxury yeah, right there. I bud. know. The, if you don't have to go outside to get your water in the wintertime, you're like basically like, you yeah. know, well-to-do. You've made it. Yeah. Is, yeah. Is, I know. Is that land still in your family today? Yes. Yeah. My brother lives there. Awesome. Um, so I also remember his your your parents would come to school, mm-hmm. the school, like the grade school, campus yeah. grade school, and mm-hmm. they would do like little exhibitions yes. and things like that. Yeah. Your mom would uh, do some like, you yeah. know, like weaving yeah. and things like that. So Yeah, beautiful was, memories I have. Uh, and my parents were always like sharing for, for, for free, for nothing. They would share whatever a value they had mm-hmm. with their environment. It was, it's a, it, I watched this. Now, the downside of this is you will be, 
poor financially the rest of your life. <laughs> but there's incredible upsides to it. You know, my dad's been been gone for, you know, 15 years. I can't tell you. But once a month, people tell me stories about him. 15 years later. Well, I'm, I'm telling you one Yeah, right I know. Yeah, you know you're, the, you're the story I, for the day. Yeah. So, but it, it's pretty, they left such a great impact on people, and they rubbed off positively on so many people, and, uh, and you know, me included. And uh, so much of the financial success I've had in my life came from watching my parents, you know, not just doing what they did, but learning what not to do by watching them also. Mm-hmm. And, and hard uh, work. And hard work, yes. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that's the key right there. So what kind of jump ahead, and this is almost shifting gears, is, you know, uh, Jonah became, like we touched on at the beginning, a hell of a football player. You know what I'm saying? And, like, you'd see sort of his background and growing up, and you don't think athlete or athletics or sports or something like that. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Kind of coming from, like, a, a hippie sort of compoundish sort of situation. You know what I'm saying? But, he, I mean, he took that that hard-nosed grinding you can't hurt me i mean he dude you live you live in a dirt have a dirt floor i mean football's easy for him you know what i'm saying he comes in and just destroys people at football so i and i remember like lifting weights and people be like oh jonah what jonah's on steroids I'm yeah like, no he's just i mean he <laughs> i just, don't they cost money i remember as i got older thinking back i'm like how would i mean they have a like <laughs> They don't have indoor plumbing. Why are they getting steroids? Yeah, I know. In Cal- County, Cal- in Cal- the 80s. It, yeah, I know. Exactly. I it mean, was where funny. would you have to go to get those? I know. Yeah, you'd have so to have a car. Maybe yeah. steal them from a farmer that's injecting his uh, yeah. cows yeah. or horses or something. I know. Uh, but, like, what was the draw to football to you? And, you know, what, what? Well, you know, it was interesting. Um, the other kids were playing football, and we had a we had a new coach who you mentioned earlier mm-hmm. and this new coach came to our county and he he breathed a different tune to the county that you know what we're going to be we're going to be dominant we're going to be champions and that was kind of an unheard of thought there because we'd never had good football there and um and so I watched this but at the time you know you know this timing is the secret to life and at the time uh, in my life, I didn't know what I wanted yet mm-hmm. when he first came on the scene. How old were you when he came? In? Well, I was I was in grade school when he first okay. when he first and we Remember, didn't have he, any. He was the art teacher. He was he the art come, teacher. Yeah, like we had we we talked to JD Lorton. He was talking about how one thing that Coach Johns did is he was the art teacher for all the grade schools mm-hmm. slash yeah. middle schools. So he would go around and sort of almost recruit, recruit talking to these kids yeah. and get them yeah. pumped up about football. Hundred percent. I didn't think about it, but that's kind of what he was, what he was doing. doing. Yeah, yeah, he was cultivating and, exactly. And, Genius. And yeah, he's planting seeds and putting yeah. fertilizer on it and watching it grow. And getting excited, and um, my my freshman year rolled around, and you know the other kids were all playing football. If you were anybody, you played football, right? And I, you know, I still wanted to be an Indian. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was weird. I, I, you know, I, I hadn't given into. I wasn't going to live my life on a dirt floor, and in a log cabin somewhere, and be a hunter and gather like my ancestors. You know, I still had this mindset. And um, I didn't actually play football my very freshman year. Didn't? Huh? No, I did wow. not. I didn't play. It wasn't for me. I, I wasn't. I, I I came to practice the first day, 
and watch the other kids who I didn't even know any of these kids because mm. obviously I've been living in the woods. And, <laughs> Literally. And, uh, and watched them all, and, you know, uh, they wrote a depth chart up. I remember I was, like, number five at left halfback. I was, no, I was like, <laughs> on the very bottom. Like 14 people playing football. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. real. <laughs> and I, I looked at it the first day, and I'm like, this isn't for me. So I, I quit after you know, we didn't even have practice. I, I showed up the first day and I quit. And I said, no, I'm going to be an Indian. Mm-hmm. And um, and then I, the second half of my freshman year, one of the archaeological students, his father was a headmaster of a boarding school in Long Island, New York. And he uh, took had a look at me uh, when he was picking his son up. His name was Clifton. And he said... Um, have you ever wrestled in your life? And I said, yeah, I wrestle with my brother all the time. And he says, well, how much do you weigh? I said, uh, I weigh 135 pounds. And he says, you know, we have an opening on our wrestling team in Long Island at 138. <laughs> yeah. And I'd never really wrestled before. And this was just a, a, a dad who happens to be a prominent headmaster of a very expensive boarding school. And my parents, you know, kind of pulled me aside. My mom, I remember she was really excited. She said, Jonah, this is an incredible break, that you, opportunity that you have. Mm-hmm. And, um, and um, I think you should do it, she said. And um, and I looked over at my dad, and my dad, you know, kind of nodded his head. He kind of went along with anything that my mom said for the most <laughs> part. And so, uh, so I went back and shook. Clifton's hand said, yeah, I'll, I'll come. And so he says, okay, we'll send you a plane ticket. And so it was the first time I went anywhere by myself. So you, uh, you went out, you flew out there? Yes, I flew out there. And um, I remember my mom took me, my mom took me to uh, the Target store down on the Beltline. And she bought me $240 worth of clothes. Wow. And I felt so, I don't know, ashamed is the word. Mm-hmm. And, um, and everything was on clearance racks or whatever. You know, I bought, I had two, I got two ties. It was, it had a dress coat. So I had two ties. I had some little tweed jacket and I had like two pairs of dockers and like, you know, three pairs of underwear and, you know, like six socks. And I got a this little suitcase. It was like $260. So, so you had, you were getting what normal kids had. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, a normal kid has more than three pairs of socks, you know, <laughs> yeah. but anyway, but that was so much money to me. And so, um, so they flew me out there. And so I went out there to wrestle. And so I had to, you know, I'm a very introspective person. You know, I always, I'm always assessing myself and I'm always judging myself and I'm always grading myself. And, and, um, this is, there's an awareness about me that normal people do not have. And, I remember going there thinking I'm not letting anyone down, excluding myself. And I and I I have an idea what I'm getting into, but I'm going to dominate at this mm-hmm. at this venture in my life. And I I go by the name Jonah White, but when I was really young, um, we lived on an Indian reservation in in New York State, and there was an and my first name is actually Jesse. And there was another Jesse there, and some for some reason it got confusing. There being two Jesses, so they start. My parents started calling me Jonah, which is my actually my second name. So 
I um, so I've which I like the name Jonah better. So I've been Jonah my whole life. Well, when I showed up there, my birth certificate says Jesse. Jesse. So I went by Jesse, and I and I changed my whole persona, who what I am, and I'm not going to be a wild Native American living in the woods. I'm going to adapt to the surrounding, and and so, but by the same token. There's this physical aspect of me, and um, and this dominating I'm going to dominate aspect of me in any environment that I wind up putting myself in. So I decided that I'm going to be a very good wrestler, and so <clears throat> I wrestled at 138. And now wrestling season had already started. There had already been two matches that I had to forfeit because I wasn't there, and so I came on the team. The now the team has a 138 pound wrestler, and I physically crushed people that I I knew nothing what I was doing. Oh. I didn't know how to wrestle. I didn't know how long the match, mats were. I didn't know you couldn't pile drive people. <laughs> um, we didn't have a TV, and I hadn't watched like WWF wrestling, but when I'd be at a friend's house, right. I'd seen it before, and I knew there was people making lots of money being wrestlers, and you know, who knows? That might be me. So you know, this poor kid who has no idea what he's getting into is going to find out tonight, right? <laughs> and so that happened every night. So, I mean, I just started. And I did. And, I mean, the, and these other kids. Did you get disqualified a lot? Oh, yeah. Because I can oh, see yeah. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. I got I, all of that. about slamming and things oh, yeah. like that. Oh, yeah. No, no. They, had, they weren't ready for me. <laughs> and I was just a freshman, right? So I'm wrestling seniors and stuff. Uh -huh. And these poor kids that, you know you know, have the Mercedes Benz and have the drivers and have all this. And then all of a sudden here, they're looking at me across the mat. <laughs> and I'm this wild savage that just came out of the woods, literally just came out and of the woods. And you kind of look like a Native American back then. <laughs> Let's be, I mean, you, did, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And they probably hear stories of, well, no, they, no, these they guys, shipped this no, guy. No? These guys had no idea. Okay. I completely blindsided them. They, they didn't know if my dad was a neurosurgeon or what. They had uh, no idea that I came from a log cabin with, with no running water, yeah. right? They did not know any of this. So I showed, I mean... My, 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 my roommate, his name was Agus. His dad was the industrial prime minister of Indonesia. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm telling yeah. the truth, yeah. right? Um, his dad came to visit him a couple times in a helicopter right? <laughs> with bodyguards, yeah. right? We went down to, and here, you know, I literally, I don't have a bar of soap, yeah. you know? And so um, I was way out of my element, which was pretty incredible for me. At that point in my life, I was probably 14, 15 years old. So I actually wound up, uh, I, did, um, I did make, playoff, uh, did make the, the state playoffs that year, even though I lost the two matches. And I wound up wrestling. Now, mind you, I was a terrible wrestler. You know, I did not know what I was doing. And it was just a physical match. And I couldn't pin anyone. I didn't have any techniques down. But mm -hmm. there really was no one that I wrestled that I couldn't take down to the mat. And then just beat them up. Right. And then if I didn't get disqualified, you know, if I didn't get disqualified, it didn't go well for them, yeah. you know. And so, but so there's a tech, there's a huge technic, tec technicalness to wrestling yes, too. Yes, they're uh, unbelievable. Yeah. And I had no idea because yeah. I I didn't. I was pretty ignorant with that yeah. end of it. I'm like, yeah, I'll figure this out. Yeah. So, so anyway, I wind up going and beat and playing uh, I, I wound up wrestling the kid who winds up winning the state championship and he was a black kid. And he had a mohawk, and um, 
and he whooped me good. Uh-huh. He was he was a he went to Penn State or something. He was very good. He was a very good wrestler, and he was a senior. And and um, anyway, so I got dominated and beaten. Mm-hmm. That's a tough feeling in wrestling. It was it? a very you, you, especially I know. when you have your mindset. I, I know. I, I, in my mind, I was I was going to dominate this guy, and I looked across at him, and I'm like, "Whoa, okay, this okay. is not going to be like last like like last night." And then, uh, you know, and this kid is just yeah, anyway. So you know, every, everyone's going to get beat at something if you do it long enough. You know, yeah. it's, it's going to happen. But I hadn't told myself that yet. Yeah. But anyway, but it did impress upon me. A lot, a lot of things. I, I got a great lesson from from that, from losing. And when I think back, you know, when I think back, the best learning experiences I've had in my life came from failures, from from losing. And um, and most people don't get they they the, when, losing to most people is a really negative thing. Matter of fact, it's maybe the most negative thing that they ever in, encounter. And to me, when you lose at something, especially if it's important, you get the very best nuggets of knowledge and and, and creativity and building you as a better whatever it is you're doing. You you get that from failure. When I when I hire people now, um, at work, um, I like talking to them in their interviews about when they failed, where they failed, and why they failed, and learning from them. And oftentimes these are the best people to hire because uh, they, they, they know how to pick up the pieces at the end. Because if you're going to do something great, there's going to be failure in there. It's just learning from it. You know, this is amazing that he just said that. I do this. Amazing. I, well, I do this leadership group on Friday mornings at 6 a.m. We're doing that how to win friends and mm-hmm. influence people. And we have a bunch of different like business owners and one of them just said today he likes asking in his interviews about a time when someone failed yeah. we had a half hour discussion on that so amazing he's, we he's, talk about it often though i mean yes things yeah. in our business the way it goes and it's the failures that you know propels us to be successful because we learn so much from them you exactly. have you have to exactly exactly so how so when when why do you come back so i come back because i i, I <clears throat> well I realized that that chapter in my life, and, and the, I broke their hearts because they wanted me. I, I mean, I won the school over. Mm-hmm. They wanted me, you know, whatever, finish my career there, be this great wrestler. And they had lacrosse there also. Lacrosse was the big sport. And at the time, I was, you know, watching television because, of course, there's TVs there and stuff. <laughs> and, and, and I decided, um, you know, I'm going to be a professional football player. And I'm not going to be a professional lacrosse player. That you know, what is that mm-hmm. anyway? And this 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 black guy who just whooped me, you know, he's going to get a college scholarship. That's it, right? He's right. going to, and that's the end of it. Right. And then I, I look at you know Walter Payton. He was my big. He was my first big role model. Walter Payton was. That's what I want to be. I want to be like. I want to be like Walter Payton. And I mean, look at how classy he is Mm -hmm. and look at the power he has and and the way he turns it on and turns it off and and i never did learn that aspect of it and the way he kind of runs around people i never learned that aspect of it either but he he left that impression on me that this is what i this that right there is what i'm going to 
that I'm going to dedicate my life to that right there. He he was like an artist on the football field. Too. Yeah, he, made he was it look so pretty. He was, you know. That's, yeah, he was. There's, he had such a huge impact on me at that point. At that point in my life, and they didn't even they didn't have football at the school. Mm-hmm. They had lacrosse. And guess what? Back home, we're 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 football now. Right. We're, we're, you know, we're having pride in football, and so I saw that inter- that, and I actually. Um, I actually came up with that decision sitting in the back of the truck when I came home for spring break, um, sitting in the back of my mom and dad's rusted out Chevy. Um, with I was sitting on the tailgate with my fate, feet actually dragging on the, on the road. <laughs> and where, uh, where the river road hits, hits, um, hits Highway 16 at the T, uh, right below, right below Fielden. Right at that intersection is where I made the decision that I'm going to be a professional football player, and uh, with my feet skipping on the road <laughs> as we pulled off towards Harden. And I remember, I remember that moment um, very well. And so I come, so now I'm a sophomore. So I come to Calhoun High School, and I'm destined to play in the NFL. And these kids are, they're just playing football because they're cool, right? Because mm-hmm. Because they, uh, you know, these these kids are are playing football for, you know, this is what we do, you know, this is whatever. And I have this plan, like, oh no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have greatness. Like, I'm going to go to college. I'm going to be. There's going to be thousands of people watching me do this. I'm going to be on television. Like, this is how I'm going to. This is how I'm going to build my future. I'm going to build a log cabin in the woods with this. This is how I'm doing it. What did your What did your parents? What was their reaction when you told them? Especially your mom. What, what was her reaction when you told her, "I'm not going back. I want, this is what I want to pursue." Yeah, you know, um, that's a great question, Ross. My my mom wholeheartedly supported me, and my mom was a very key factor in why I've been what I've been in my life. If you call it successful or a loser or whatever, whatever that is, <laughs> my my mom is probably the largest force in that and I felt like I was 10 foot tall when I was with my mother and I wanted to make her proud like that was you know um the bond I had with her it's it's hard to describe it and um I uh, I kind of I don't know I was the one who cut the firewood I was the one who got the stove going in the morning I'm the you know we we cooked off a wood stove so if the stove wasn't going guess what you didn't eat anything so you know, I was the one who was going up in the woods and shooting the animals and dragging them down and cutting them up. You know, I, I kind of was the kind of the provider of my f- our family from about about third grade to probably about well, really all the way through high school, even um, probably till I went off to college. So it was my mom really fully supported everything, but my mom was very analytical, and she would when I would tell her what I wanted to do, she would break that down and we, and she would say, why is that? And make me question why I'm making these decisions other than just a spontaneous decision. These are some of the most dangerous ones that you make. And, and so she was like, you know, what are your dreams? What do you want to do? How are you going to do that? You know? Mm -hmm. And then at the end of these conversations that we would have, she would let me know, unequivocally that I was going to be able to achieve anything if I was the kind of human being that could do anything she made me feel this way and 
Um, but she made me question everything, every step of the way, which is very, very important. These people say, oh, you can do anything, but they really don't mean that. They just say that. Well, you, you figure this out after about fifth or sixth grade, right? They're yeah. just saying this to make you feel good, right? Well, this wasn't the case with my mother. And um, there was always purpose to what was being done and what, was, what we were doing. And um, anyhow, so I told her that I was going to play in the NFL. And, um, and she asked me, what are, the, what, what are the chances of you doing this, like on paper? I said, about one in 3,000. And she said, I'm 14 years old. She said, you're going to be the one in 3,000. <laughs> and um, I have no doubts. You will be that one in 3,000. And I remember her telling me that. She was sitting on her bed when she did. And um, I knew that I wasn't going to, I was a terrible student. I didn't want to go to school. I really didn't like school, except for sports. But I knew, and art, but I knew that college football was the only way I was going to go get an education after school. I knew that if I was going to be financially successful in my life, it wasn't because people taught me this in school. It was because I figured this out and, um, and, and, and made this happen, and, uh, which is very true. And, but I needed, I needed to go to school. I needed, I needed to go to college. I needed to spend those years of my life around other people learning what it would be to be successful, even if they're not teaching me what it actually is. So the only way I was doing this was playing football. So football was very, very important to me in many ways other than just making a bunch of money as an NFL football player. So, um, so I had, you know, so I started playing my, my sophomore, junior, and then my senior year. So you, you show up going into your sophomore year. Did they have summer like, look, look who's days back. and look stuff who's like back. that? Yeah. Well, you know, the funny thing so, is, is I come in to play football as a sophomore no one no one knows my name like you know we were my family was uh, we didn't have any name or anything i lived in the woods and i was that kid that lives in on a dirt floor right i mean like they kind of laughed about it i wasn't some built like a brick shithouse whatever i weighed 155 pounds and i i hadn't even lifted weights yet i didn't even know how to lift weights yet and um but i knew i was going to lift weights harder than anyone yeah. I knew I was going to lift weights harder than people in the NFL, which I did. And I was going to train and work and, you know, I mean, like like you guys, you put 100% into something, you have potential to do something. But you put 90% into it, you're going to be like hey, everybody else. Yeah. And so I was that 100%er. And, um, and really, my I didn't even really, I hardly played at all my, my sophomore year. It wasn't until the end of the end of the year that they actually actually gave me the football in a, in a game to see, and I wound up running for 250 yards against a team that we'd never beaten before in the school history, and um, and everybody looked at me like, "Wow, did that just happen?" You know, <laughs> and this is and um, and that was at the that was the last game that I played in my sophomore year, and then my senior year, you know, I co- I, I come in here. And I did learn about politics a little bit, which I didn't really understand. One of the misperceptions that I had um, with football was there would not be politics. Mm-hmm. And that's why I, that was, that was one of the things that attracted me to it. 
I'm just thinking it's ability, the best hundred percent. Right. But you know, until you've done it, you don't know. Right. Right. And you know, on paper you have one thing, and then you have reality right here. So I was just looking at paper. So I'm thinking, I I want football because if if I dedicate myself to football, you know, politics won't get involved, and 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 they're gonna, you know, when you have money on on the line and, and jobs on the line, of course you're gonna put the best people out there yeah. on the line, right? And so I, I was naive to this because I hadn't done it yet. So my junior year, I, uh, uh, um, I have started to lift weights, and I'm, I'm benching close to 300 pounds. I'm, I ran the fastest 40-yard dash that had been run at the school at that point in time. And I'm pretty sure you ran it barefoot, too. I'm probably, I probably did. I'm, well, I had shoes, but the soles are worn out of them, so I was barefooted. And, and that was one thing about Coach Johns. He brought... Wait, when we talked about this one time, he brought like weight, a new like weightlifting system. Yeah, you know, we did plyometrics and we brought in the bigger, yes. faster, stronger yes. program and got people like you had like lifting weights was a requirement. Yeah, he made everyone buy into it. Yes, uh, that's where he was so successful. One of the reasons he was so successful. Yes, I think you know what I'm saying. We were well. He 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 instilled that you did the most. You weren't cutting corners. Like if you skipped weightlifting on a particular day you compromised everyone right well that now anywhere that doesn't exist that mindset that he had he's a dinosaur by the way that mindset that he brought in was right out of the jurassic and i bought into that 100 percent as you did but the kids today with the media and with the news and with the mindset that you know you you need to get something for nothing you know, you, you lazier is better. If if you can cut corners, of course you cut corners because you're smart. No, no, smart isn't cutting corners. Smart is embracing hardship. That you know, this is job is going to be difficult, and I'm going to crush this job, and then I'm going to crush the next one, and the next one, and I'm going to make this business or whatever this is you're doing the best. Well, that's that's not even on the radar today, and 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 Coach Johns brought that right front and center in front of me pulled that cart right in front of me and i looked at it and i'm like yeah i'm all in so um so anyway so i wind up having a great high school career i, I think he had almost two thousand yards no i had over, over I had two thousand one hundred yards two thousand one hundred yards like his senior year and so what about your junior year were you were you so my junior year dominant I, were you a starter I, were you? I was a starter yeah i was all conference but i didn't get to start in our backfield because we had a team captain who was a senior and he started over me and I couldn't believe this, you know. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, this kid's 240 pounds, you know, I'm 165. Uh, but he isn't made out of the stuff I'm made out of, right? right, right. Like, I, <laughs> I, I like actually that. felt, I actually felt, especially in college, that if you took a knife and ran it across my rib cage and opened it up, there would be machine parts in there. <laughs> I, I, I felt the, the Terminator came out right. that year. And, you know, and... That movie had a big impact on me because I'm like, man, I'm like it. I'm like that, that's like me. Yeah. Did they write this about me? I, and so, uh, like you know, Ross, it, I remember, <laughs> I remember one play, Jonah's senior year. It was like buck forty or buck forty one. Something wasn't that what it was called, Jonah? Something like that it was him up the middle. Yeah. Him up the middle. You know what I'm saying? And uh, they ran it. 17 times in a row against a team like a stud team. might have was it the playoffs it was in playoffs playoffs 17 times in a row they ran the same play and why do you run the same play because it's working yes you yeah. know what i'm saying and he's just 
I mean, he's just like a a, a bulldog, just like a, a bowling ball in there. Just people are bouncing mm-hmm. off him, and like he was, like he said he was super fast. Were you at that game? Yeah, when he, I did that. Yeah, he was super fast, but he would never run around anyone. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't. So that game right there, the, the the beautiful thing about that memory and that game, it was the first round of playoffs. And we're playing a team that, that I had run for 200 yards on during, during my first 200-yard game in regular season was against mm-hmm. that team. And we wind up beating that team when they were very good. And we play them first round of playoffs. And in my head, we're going to be state champions, right? But no one else had really... I shouldn't say no one else. A lot of other people hadn't bought into this. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you, it's it, they've had a losing culture up there for a long 100%, time. hundred percent. And it's you know? tough and to so break out is. of that. It really is. So we're playing this team that we narrowly beat in regular season. And things don't go well for us. And I don't really have the ball handed to me very much for some reason. I don't remember. Mm-hmm. And we're losing 14 to nothing in halftime. And, um, and Coach Johns is enraged and you know doing you know coaching things like throwing <laughs> chairs and stuff at halftime and you know he was quite intimidating and um that might have been where my mince meat i think it was probably because it's, it's it, it, it was kind of fits it sounds he, like it fits i don't remember where he is yelling at everyone and um that were whatever and whatever and whatever and he felt betrayed by us mm-hmm. coach did and, you know, to me, this man was like my father. Right. And it was very quiet in that locker room. And I stood up and said, if you want to win this football game, you simply have to give me the ball. Right. <laughs> and, and then I, and, uh, and uh, it was quite simple. Yeah. And uh, I broke it. I broke down it, everything to the smallest denominator. Right. Yeah. And uh, and I said some other things, but that was that was the cliff notes of it. Yeah. And so he, every, it was quiet right in the locker room. Like he's yelling and screaming and throwing chairs. And I stood up and said that to him and the entire team. Like it's simple. Like if you want to win this game, <laughs> here here it is. Here's it's I'll simple. break the math down for you right here. And uh, and he looked over at me and he said, "You better put your money where your mouth is." Mm-hmm. And that's all he said. And it was quiet. I put my helmet back on, and I just walked out of the locker room without everybody. I just walked back out to the field. And so we were on. So we, we take the field after halftime, and the play comes in. You know, the wide receiver brought the play in, and it was Buck 40, mm-hmm. which was a pulling guard. It was a trap play. And, um, and I was good at this because I was very fast, and I would come through that line incredible, you know, at about forty miles an hour. Before my, the fat boys could get up, right, stand up. right, yeah. And and you know, when the defensive lineman was looking up, he's looking right at my my face mask. Mm-hmm. And I ran about two feet high, and um, so buck forty. So boom, we six, seven, eight yards. Like you know, I just ran over five people. So we're sitting there at the in the huddle. No play comes in. Like, the wide receiver doesn't come in with the play. Mm-hmm. Oh, he came in with the play, and it was buck 40 until we score. That was the play. <laughs> that, oh, that's what he comes That was in. the so play. Run. <laughs> and so so we're looking. We didn't know why he said until we score, because we're on our 20-yard line. Uh-huh. And um, so 
we're looking and no no wide receiver comes in. You know, there's no wireless headsets in 1987. Yeah. And so, uh, well, I, I guess buck 40, you know, <laughs> shot the, the <laughs> clock was down to like 10 seconds. So we, yeah. boom, we run it again, like yeah. seven yards, eight yards, just crushing people in the middle. You know, I mean, I'm so angry. I just want to like take it out on these other guys, poor other kids. Yeah. And we, we line up. No play. No play. <laughs> well, by the third time, we knew what the deal was, right? Yeah. And uh, and we thumped the same play seventeen times in 17 a row. Seventeen times in a row. Down the field, we and without even bringing in a play. Yeah. Like everyone in the stadium, everyone yeah. knows what this play well, is. Well, and you have to think the other team at some point is like, okay, this time they're not going to do it. Okay, they'll never do it again. <laughs> yeah. okay, they're not going to yeah. run that play again. I, I, I don't know. I mean, there's there's like no play coming in, <laughs> and everyone's and, – and these poor – this poor middle linebacker this other team had. <laughs> Could you imagine? I, I'm crushing this poor kid, like crushing him. So we thump it all the way down there 17 times in a row, and then I, I wind up scoring. Anyway, long story short, I run for – 250 yards in a game and we i score three touchdowns so we we win 18 to 14 i go to the all-star game that year and and uh and they had a really really good safety and he said to me uh man that was the worst feeling in the world he said it didn't seem like you were getting like much success in the middle uh-huh but those goal posts, those goal posts, kept getting closer and closer to me. <laughs> just, just, uh, so, so, so that year, ended up going to the state championship. Y'all want to win? Put booby in. That's what it reminds Friday Night Lights. <laughs> Friday Night, you want to win? Put booby in. Let me spin. <laughs> yeah, so they ended up going to the state championship. Calhoun, I think it's the first time they ever yep, went to the state. Yep. Ended up losing in the the uh, the the title game or whatever. Yeah, we lost by one touchdown. In, in um, against the number one ranked team, and was it Notre Dame Catholic? No, it was Bloomington Central Catholic. Yeah, Bloomington Central. Catholic. Well, they were allowing them to be one A then, but they're like three or four A now. But yeah. <laughs> but anyway, they um, when I think back to that, you know, that failure that I felt in the bus coming back from mm-hmm. that game, it was a long ride. It was a long one, and um, and that was such a beautiful feeling, that emotion of failure you worked so hard and then to to get so far and then to come up that short like we got i i sacked the quarterback on a third and 10 i sacked the quarterback made it fourth and 18 and they threw a bomb and i remember watching in slow motion that ball going over the top of charlie booth and then that receiver, like, just beautiful catch in the ice. Like, you know, it was an insane play. And that's life right there. That yeah. feeling, that torment of working and, so hard. And it's, it's that feeling's never left. No, it's beautiful. Yeah. It's yeah. beautiful. And it's painful. Like, you go to a funeral and it's your uncle or something. And, you know, your life is, you don't realize what a gift that you, you, you made this beautiful thing happen. You made it happen, and you're the reason why this relationship is what it is, or this game, or this job, or this career, or whatever. And everything comes to an end. And um, it's really just, I don't know, it's just, there's just a beautiful aspect to failure when you've done everything you can and worked as hard as you can. And sometimes it's just not enough, and you have to accept that. And, um, 
and that's you know that's football and um i i i walked on i ran for i led the nation in rushing i led the whole country in rushing i led the state of illinois by almost 400 yards you led the entire nation, nation your senior in year and got no scholarship offers from anyone really yeah and um and uh and so i i um i was my my goal was to go to university of miami who'd won the, the national championship and uh good 90 goal. good goal a good, good goal, goal. <laughs> <laughs> and anyway, I almost walked on at Miami. Anyway, uh, I'll tell you a good story here. Man, you would have had some real stories to tell us right now if you I, walked on. Uh, so, the you, right, Ross? <laughs> the you. You would, have been in the, you would have been in that documentary. Yeah. <laughs> the, the 30 for 30 one. <laughs> so, um, so a few years ago, I was filming uh, an episode of a reality show with Dwayne Johnson in uh, Fort Lauderdale. For The Rock, for people that don't know. Yeah. And he played defensive end. Number ninety four on that national championship team. What year was what year was that? Was he nineteen ninety? If yeah. I would have so walked, you would have been there with. Yeah. If I would have walked <laughs> on there, and so he had. I wrote a book a few years ago. I don't ten twelve years ago. What's the name of that? Uh, the Billy Bob's Secret to Life is the name. I'd think about it. And so uh, he he had read that book and did a bit of research on me, and he mm -hmm. had me on a reality show with him, and um, we were sitting around a campfire actually, and. Um, he said, you know, if you would have walked on at University of Miami, we would have played in the national championship together. He said that to me. Huh. And I said, yeah, we would have. And he said, and you know what? You wouldn't be here with me right now. True. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, you know, you're probably right there too. So, uh, you know, there's, uh, there's, uh, there's always, you know, the other side. You yeah. can't only just look at what could be. You have to look at what might have been or what would have been or what should have been or whatever so very very interesting but but anyway i uh you end up at missouri state i went to i walked on at missouri state and um did I, you go did you go down and look at miami you said you no, almost walked on no i i i sent them film they offered me to walk on their tuition was seventeen thousand dollars a year which to me is a million dollars yeah i mean i i had a volkswagen rabbit with two hundred thousand miles on it um it wouldn't have been able to make the drive. I don't think yeah. so. Uh, so anyhow, <laughs> that's uh, weird to think about now that that's one of the reasons. It right? was. I had a, I had a, a the car wouldn't have made it, but I couldn't I couldn't have afforded yeah. it. Yeah. I, I I couldn't. Uh, Missouri State was two thousand dollars a year, and that was a lot of money. And so I knew that if I went there, I could I could outwork everyone, which I did, and I could wind up starting possibly freshman sophomore year, which I wound up doing. And um, I beat out six full scholarship fullbacks there. I was the lightest fullback by 30 pounds on the on the team, and uh, I wound up. I had a wonderful career there. Wound did, up. Did you earn a scholarship? I, I earned a scholarship, yeah. but you know, uh, I mean, I was all conference player of the year. I never got a full scholarship. Hmm. Wow. I I had three full scholarship fullbacks sitting on the bench while I played. Well, and they're, I, they're like, hey, this guy's going to come here whether we give him a scholarship. Hundred percent, bullshit. What it was. Though. Yeah, it no, you, you don't. You don't, Ross. You don't get what you're worth. <laughs> you get what you negotiate. That's a great fucking point. <laughs> I know. You don't get what you're worth. I was. I was a stray dog. They couldn't. Yeah. They couldn't. They couldn't have chased me away. Yeah. I mean, they, they knew that. Yeah. They they knew that. Yeah. My my finally my senior year, they gave me books. I didn't have a textbook <laughs> until my senior year. Yeah. I went. I I went. 
there for five years. The first four years, I never even owned a textbook. <laughs> That's how good of a student I was. Well, okay, hold on. Meaning that was a joke. Okay, did you, did you go to class? Yeah. Oh, I I did. I give a hundred percent. Okay. I went to class and paid attention, took notes, mm -hmm. and and you know I'm here, so I'm going to give a hundred percent. Right. But well, kind of. You didn't have a book. Well, I mean, I'm here, but I don't <laughs> I don't buy a book, but yeah. and I don't study that much. But yeah. I I did. You know, worked out. You know, hours and hours every day. Mm -hmm. You know, and um, and you know, Springfield, Missouri is a beautiful place. I I, I considered living there mm -hmm. after college, but um, but yeah, it was a uh, it was a beautiful time in my life. Those five years I spent down there, uh, I still remember them all the time. I'm I'm friends with the new head coach. You just actually they made postseason this year for the first time since I was a fullback. Oh, nice. uh, they made full postseason uh, this year. I'm very proud of you know what bobby's done so let's get a quick recap just on your college career so you go in yeah walk on your freshman year you end up starting before the season's over uh i started that spring okay the following spring so sophomore year on your yeah you're a starter yeah hold records yes yeah rushing records there still today yeah um and uh anyway the uh we wind up making playoffs two of the four years that I played. You know, I redshirted my first year, so I didn't play yeah. any of my first okay. year. Uh, I knew that if I could earn a scholarship, I knew it was probably going to take me five years to graduate from there, but I knew that I would have four years of paid school with a scholarship if I redshirted my first year. So I did, and um, I tried out for the NFL, and you know what? I didn't have what it took. There was, uh, you know, there wasn't a... I don't know how to say this the right way. I just it just didn't make it, so I wasn't good enough. That's the way I took it. But I went to the NFL Combine in Chicago, and I ran the third fastest 40 of 350 people that were there. Damn. And I had the strongest bench press of any running back or fullback at, at, at Chicago Bears Combine in 1992. Mel Kuyper would be blowing this guy up today. <laughs> Could you imagine if they would have had it? Great story, yeah. 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 So, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't meant to be. It wasn't going to happen. And... Um, I, I the way I ran uh, my my sophomore year, I broke my right arm against the University of Tulsa, who was ranked number eight in the nation, and um, they had an unbelievable freak of nature middle linebacker, and uh, and he broke my arm. And uh, anyway, uh, it was in, it was incredible to me when I looked down and saw my my wrist my my radius swell like. It was incredible knowing that your body can swell like that. Well, you're like machine parts aren't supposed to do I that. I know. <laughs> I was. I was. In, I couldn't little, believe that it broke. A vulnerable moment. Huh? Yes. Yeah. You know. I mean, this guy who just tackled me. You know, benches 600 pounds, mm -hmm. weighs 275. You know, probably steroiding his ass off. And here I'm weighing 205, and I can't believe that he broke my arm. Like I couldn't. Like like. This this material shouldn't break. It was insane. <laughs> I remember thinking that, and then coming on, and then then you know the pain is just swelling my arm. I'm like okay, yeah. I am mortal, you know. And yeah. so, you know, I just remember these just incredible thoughts. I mean, it's pretty awesome to sit here and think think back about about your own perception of what you are, and you know, and how that can equate to success or failure or or, or being a good person or what. Right. And um, so it's just yeah, just incredible. You know, just incredible, I guess, to circle back. Just incredible memories about football and athletics and incredible people like Coach Johns that 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 
you know, taught me that I could do things that other human beings couldn't do and that nothing really holds you back. And, you know, these dreams are achievable. And being average just was not, like, on the radar screen. Did, did you ever ride our mom's bus? Was our mom ever your bus driver? Do you remember that? Was what? Was our mom ever your bus driver? Do you remember that? Our mom. Uh, me and Ross's mom. Oh. Was she ever your bus driver? Uh, I rode with her before, yeah. Uh, I was say, mm-hmm. how, how'd that, when he, he remember that at all? She was, She used to be like a tough bus driver. Like, <laughs> one of the, like, you don't want to be on her Sergeant Margaret's bus. <laughs> I'm sure not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I remember. It's, I mean, it's beautiful. Growing up in Small Town, USA. Yeah. I mean, we're so lucky, the three of us, yeah. you know? Right. The, I mean, think about this. Yeah. I mean, just how lucky we are. Uh, you know, I'll... I'll throw another story out there a a defensive end who played at missouri state uh right after i left but i knew him black guy st louis um great guy um two years ago his seven 16 year old 17 year old son his 17 year old son is smoking a cigar on his grandmother's porch in downtown st louis and he's shot and killed um while his grandmother is inside the house. And a friend of mine, a friend of ours, who played with us, who was, a, who was also on the defensive line from Arkansas, he said, hey, did you hear about, I won't mention his name, did you hear about so-and-so's son? I said, no, and he sent me a like a screenshot of, you know, newspaper article and just came out in St. Louis. And, and then while I'm reading this on my phone, my son, who's also the same age, um, comes up the stairs and says, Dad, I just got, I just got, you know, 185 pounds for, for six on bench. Mm-hmm. And I got a Smith machine down in my basement. And I'm looking at him, and I'm looking at my phone at the same time with this, this other black kid who's the same age as my son, and his dad played football with me. Mm-hmm. Same place, same time. And his son was going off to play college sports. And, um, and the, the difference was just where we decided to live. Right. And that, and that means so much in so many, like, you know, in so many people's lives. I know. If you, we were all born somewhere else, someplace, in what somebody, a different else's, thing. somebody I else's circumstances. I know. You know and you make, you make out of life what you make out of life. And there's a million things that go into this. But your environment... You sit on your grandma's porch and you get shot. That's not nothing you can do, you know? Well, I mean, for him, but his father and I were in the same place at the same time, and we chose different paths and not blaming his father for this. But I'm just saying, circling back to growing up in small-town USA where the three of us did, um, we were just so fortunate, lucky. We didn't move there. I mean, our parents moved there. They decided we were going to live there, you know? And we just sought for what it was and lived the best times of our lives there. You know? um, so you graduate graduate from Missouri State. Yeah, I get a biology degree. Biology degree. So do you... To, to say you weren't a good student, you hated school, and then you <laughs> you graduate with a biology degree. <laughs> yeah. Hats off, too. That's, that's <laughs> yeah, going in there. It was, well, I have to tell you, Ross, I broke down my senior year, and I did have a... a my scholarship started paying for my books. And the senior-level biology classes were crushing me so mm-hmm. i had to i had to break down and study my senior year it wasn't pretty and to, you know to get my 
2.0 grade point average or whatever <laughs> it is when I graduated. But I did graduate from there, and, uh, and I got that little piece of paper, and I knew this piece of paper doesn't dictate anything to me. And I knew that this piece of paper will never decide my future, my career, how successful I am. But I worked here, and I'm not coming out of here without this yeah. little right. piece of paper. Right. And it was just kind of a, a grudge match for me to, to wind up passing these senior-level biology classes, which were very difficult uh, for me, and, um, and graduating, which I, I did. And, um, and I'm kind of proud I am. You know, I've had... You know, I've I've interviewed, you know, hundreds of people in my career for jobs with you know with my companies, and um, and they come to me with degrees all the time, and sometimes they come to me with a you know degree from one girl came with a degree from SIU and she had a 4.0 grade point average. I'm like, you're too qualified to work. Here. I'm sorry, <laughs> and it, it really broke her up. Like, you know, why? And I'm like, I'm, my business will be a stepping stone for you. Right, right. Right, you're, you're, you're going places. You're she, doing she things. She probably didn't realize you were doing her a favor. Yes, I know. I, I'm, this right here is not where you're going to be in five or ten years. Mm-hmm. And, and I want people in my team here that are Can five be, or ten years. Grow with you. Yeah, you don't have to be here forever, but I want ten years. Yeah. And, um, and uh, which seems like forever sometimes. But, um. But anyway, a, a degree is important. It shows me that someone can stick with something and finish something, and um, but that's the extent of it. Um, so leave there. Now I'm gonna skip ahead and do research. I see, you know, you get on, you Google, you Google Jonah White, blah blah. It says he's worth fifty million dollars. Yeah, that's what it says on. That's what it says on the internet, Ross. Mm-hmm. I'm just throwing out there. It's public knowledge. So how do we go from from the dirt floor to playing football to not making the NFL? We're out of college. How do we get there? Where where what's our first step out of college? Because the NFL is out. Well, okay, so. We all get big breaks in life. We all do. Mm-hmm. Every one of us does. Your employees out there at the bar, out there, they get them too. The The difference is most people, I say most, I mean maybe 99%, they don't understand what a break is. They don't, their their mindset, their their intuition isn't, they're not soaking up what, what, the reality of a big break is. Now, I didn't make the NFL, and my goals for the NFL were very simple. I wanted to play for three years in the NFL. I wouldn't play my first year. I would I would be a special teams person. My second year, I would be a very strong second teams person. I would get a little limited playing time. My third year, I'd be cut my fourth. I would be making league minimum at least two of those three years. This is Mama White coming, no, coming out, and yes. you're coming out, and you This like, is me being things, a realist. Breaking things down. Yes. And, um, and at the end of my career in the NFL, I was going, I figured out I was going to make like around $220,000, right? Mm-hmm. Which wouldn't make payroll for my company for three months, four months. But that I worked the hardest. I worked in my life for eight years for that right there. And I didn't make it. I failed even at that. Mm-hmm. But, um, but what that brought me it opened so many doors down the road 
in other ways that you don't understand. When you do awesome at something, only good will come of that. Right. When you do terrible at something, maybe something good, probably not. Probably something bad, maybe not. Maybe nothing. But when you do great, incredible, only positive things happen from this. And some of the best things in my life have happened from being successful in, in football. So I move back from, from college. I graduate. I'm very lost. I don't make the NFL. Mm-hmm. And I've just worked eight years, and it didn't work out. And so your, your, your impulsive mindset is, I just failed. Well, no, you didn't fail. This is just a step right here. And um, you know, and it's and, weird to think of your success as yeah. being a failure. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Like, listen to those crazy, amazing things he did. But I mean, you had bigger goals. But to us, yes. listen to the story. It's like, wow, that right, you, right, yeah. You're player of the year. Why do you feel like you're a failure? <laughs> right. Yeah. So, so, um, I come home, and I'm very, I'm in a very vulnerable time in my life. I just have this degree, and I don't know what to do, and I don't have a plan, and. My father gives me incredible advice. He tells me that I need cave time. Cave time. Cave time. Okay. Yeah. And uh, sometimes this, the best things in life are also the most simple. So I actually moved into a cave. Is cave time, is, is that something that came, comes from your father's? Yeah. Neanderthal DNA. So I actually moved into a cave behind my parents' house in the woods. <laughs> Uh, during, during, uh, during the summer and fall of 1994, I lived in a cave for almost a year. Wow. That's in the woods. And, um, and, uh, I didn't have a car and, um, now I had, uh, by this point in time, my student loans have kicked in and I have to start paying them back. So a local, uh, a local, um, handyman was, we'd met at the coffee shop. He, his name was Howard Braden, just a beautiful human being. Uh, he um, had me working for him as a carpenter, handyman. I nailed boards, and he taught me how to make stuff and build stuff. And I, I he apprenticed me, and he was in his 70s, and he really shouldn't have been working, but he kind of needed money. And so, and, and, uh, and so I worked for him. So he would come to my parents' house in the morning, and my dad would cook him scrambled eggs or whatever on our old stove, and I would come walking out of the woods, and I would have breakfast, and then Howard would take me off to work. And I'd go work on some barn or who knows what I would do, working on decks and stuff. Actually, I built things, actually, during that year that I still see today when I drive around Calhoun, which is pretty beautiful. And so <clears throat> um, I did this for about a year. And towards the end of this um, period of time, uh, football season rolls around, and my head coach at Missouri State, um, calls up my parents' house. And when I played there, we we forced our will on our opponents, <clears throat> which a lot of that was me. Mm-hmm. And we crushed people pretty good. And after I graduated, all of a sudden, we weren't a dominant team anymore. And and really, the kid, the poor kid that they put in my shoes couldn't take it and they chased him out of there and he wound up transferring to Mizzou and um and um we wound up losing so I never played on a losing football team and so he called my parents house and he asked 
if I would come talk to the football team before the Alabama State game that weekend. And so when I came down to have my breakfast. Out of the cave. Out of the cave. <laughs> my mom said, you know, Coach Brands called for you last night, and he's wanting you to come talk to the football team this weekend before the game. And so when um, so when you don't have a car, you know, you have to be kind of creative. So I said, yeah, I think I can swing this. You know, my, my roommate Neil, uh, his dad lives in Edwardsville, and if I can get a ride to the Alton Bell, he can pick me up there and take me to Springfield. So, yeah, I, I worked my magic, and I got to the game and talked to the team. And um, and then got on the sideline. And uh, anyway, during the game, um, I hear a bunch of commotion in the si- in the stands behind me. And I turn around and look, and there is this redneck hick, you know, bodybuilder with his shirt off, just talking this terrible smack to these girls, uh-huh. like maybe ten rows up in the stand. And he's, you know, he's got a ch- he's chiseled. And he's got these terrible teeth. His teeth are just—they're so bad. I can see him from the football field. <laughs> and uh, and I'm like, what the hell? And I remember him telling this girl, "If you want a pickle, you have to open the jar." He said this to this one girl. In this, and I'm this is insane. I'm watching this during the football game. So yeah. I turn around, and I mean, everybody's watching this ridiculous dude in the stands. Anyway, so I turn around. And I'm watching the game. So we win the game, and I'm and I congratulate the guys after the after the the game's over, and I'm getting a drink at the water fountain, and my big break happens. You run into the chiseled guy. <laughs> I'm two linoleum squares in front of the water fountain when my big break happens. I turn around, I get a drink. There's this guy standing in front of me, and he says, "You're Jonah White." I said, "Yeah," you know. I shook his hand. Mm-hmm. He said, "I'm Rich Bailey." I'm I'm a big Neil. I'm I was his best friend in high school. I went to Edwardsville with him. Oh yeah, he told me about you. You know, making dynamite, dynamiting the fish in Lake Springfield. You know, and feeding the football team. <laughs> and I said, he told you what? You know? Yeah. Uh, I said, you know, I said, yeah. You know, dynamite. And I'm like, well, it's not really what it's called, but yeah. You know, uh, I'm looking at this guy, and it's not adding up because this guy looks familiar, but I never seen this guy. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, man, is that that guy in the stands? But his teeth are perfect. Yeah. And I'm like, uh, Rich, I'm going to ask you something. Did, did you go to the dentist at halftime or something? <laughs> I, I said this to him. Yeah. He said, oh, you like my Billy Bob teeth? And he reaches in his pocket, and he pulls out this, this piece of acrylic teeth, and he pushes it over his teeth. And... It was, it was, I called the King Arthur moment. Like, you just you know, pulled, this, you pulled you, the you sword pulled, out you, of the stone, yeah. didn't you? <laughs> and the lightning bolts came out of the, sky, out of the clouds. Yeah. I, and it, right then at that moment, and this goes back to that whole perception thing. We had a linebacker coach named Coach Riley, good friend of mine. And Coach Riley was a huge man, you know, all American defensive end in Arkansas. He had, you know, 25, 30-inch biceps, you know, big dude. Like yours, Ross. Yeah, kind of like Ross a little <laughs> bit. Anyway, and, uh, Coach Riley's a little darker skin than Ross. But anyway, Coach Riley stops standing right there. Says, Take that out of your mouth. That is stupid. And Rich, you know, you know, when a guy this big tells you to do something, you do yeah. it usually. So Rich pulls those teeth out of his mouth. 
And I put my hand out. I said, let me see those. And he sets them on my hand. And I'm looking at, you know, my mind is breaking down this whole situation. And I'm looking at 40 or 50 cents of acrylic. One side, my left side of my brain is saying, this right side of my brain is saying, I'd pay $100 for that. Yeah. And then the other side saying, that wouldn't take more than 10 minutes to make if you knew what you were doing. The other side says, I, millions of people will buy this. Now, this whole thing's going in milliseconds. And I said, where did you get that? And I'm thinking he's going to say, well, I, uh, you know, I went to Spencer Gifts and bought it or whatever. He said, I made it last week in denture class. I'm, <laughs> I'm a sophomore dental school, SIU. I said, you're making Even me. better, right? Uh, I know. <laughs> I said to him, uh, you're making me a pair. But you know, when, when you, the reason why this whole thing happened is because I was successful in football. Had I not been successful in football, none of this would That's why you were there. Yes. Now, yes, this had nothing to do with football, a person would say. But it has everything to do with football. You would have never been standing on the sidelines, no. you know. This person would never have approached. Why would he come to me right. out of the whole crowd? Right. Out of 10,000 people. Right. I, it, because I was what I was and gave 100% for all those years and did that. <laughs> Fucking hey. it, it makes It makes this, you set the stage for greatness like this. And then if your mind isn't programmed to understand opportunity looks a million different ways. You know, what does opportunity really look like? Well, for me, it was a rotten pair of teeth sitting on the palm of my hand. That's what opportunity was. And Rich didn't know what he had either. You know, he just made this thing as a joke. And so I, you know, I said to him, I could sell a million of these. He says, you think so? <laughs> I said, yeah. I mean, are you kidding me? You turn me loose on this, coach. I'm ready. And... At that point in my life, and this was luck, this right here was luck, I needed a mentor in my life that I didn't have until Rich came into my life. Mm -hmm. He was all about people skills. He had, he, he was a salesman. He was, the women loved him. And you're, but I'm not a, no offense, your people skills wasn't that great back no, then. No, God, no. No, 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 dude. It was, it was like I was back wrestling at Knox School. I mean, it was like, you know, I was a savage. You know, yeah. I mean, I, to say I was rough. And, and, and rewind him ways back, like, Jonah, you know, you hear about uh, someone coming from the woods and living in a log cabin, super poor, having, him and his brother Wadi, they carried a certain, like, I don't want to say arrogance because I don't want to say, but a certain confidence around yeah. them. Even coming from those those humble beginnings, mm -hmm. if you will, they, I mean, they, you, you'd think of somebody like that from your school that would come in and maybe yeah. be shy because yeah. they, you know, wearing old clothes and maybe no shoes and you'd think they'd be shy. I, no. Those yeah. two, I mean, they, they walked in like they were the grand poobahs of the place, you yeah. know? So, yes. It's a little different, you know? Yeah. It's different. It was a beautiful time, you so, know? So you meet him. I'm just, I just wanted to, just, you know, just the, your listeners, just if they learn anything from me, my story, it's that, it's that success comes in all different ways, and there's really no substitute for hard work, and and giving a hundred percent, and and really learning what that is, and dedicating yourself to something. Have, have, you know. Um, don't strive to fit in mm -hmm. so much. And now, when I say this, 
don't strive not to fit in either. You, you know, you take the best cards that you, you that, that you have dealt to you to, to, to lead with. But, you know, you see other people then that do these ridiculous things. They get their faces all tattooed up and they do all the stuff and they screw themselves up because they want to be way, way different. Well, you're, you know, people that are extreme are usually screwed up. If it's no matter what to what extent, you know, only there's just handfuls of people. Someone like Elon Musk, he's so extreme, but he pulls it off. Mm -hmm. But he has talent like I can't even fathom. Like I, you can't, you can't compare me to something like that. You know, I mean, you know, he's a a very oddity that someone that extreme can pull it off and make everything work. Most of the time, I've I've dealt with thousands of inventors like probably four or five thousand inventors i've helped in my career most of them are just so screwed up because they they're they're out of control they don't harness it bring Mm -hmm. it back in that's the amazing thing to me about elon musk is that he closes the loop and he comes back to it and makes sure the whole thing works I, i i try to study people like that what makes this guy incredible it's not that he's so smart he is so smart it's his fact of figuring it all out and getting all the pieces together. And at that point in time in my life, I was so deficient on people skills. And Rich Bailey, this guy with all this charisma and good looking and the total package comes Mm -hmm. in and he's barely struggling to pass dental school. And he's like, I can't help you, you know, start a company selling these things. You know, I'm, I'm barely passing, you know, (laughs) I mean, if I flunk, I'm losing a quarter million dollars student loans and getting no degree like i i have to focus on this i'm like it took me it took me about a week to persuade him to start a business with me so at the time i had a 45 um i had a 45 colt handgun a springfield armory and i took it to uh i took it to the pawn shop discount house in jerseyville (laughs) And Taiwan John gave me four hundred dollars for it, <laughs> and that was our startup capital. Wow! So I then I then took my only asset I had that was tangible to Rich, and said, "I'm willing to get us incorporated, and we'll go fifty-fifty in this, and and I will make you rich if you let me." And I'm like, you know, put me in, coach, and and he he thought about it and he said you sure you want to do this and you know he, he, i'm like you don't you don't get what you're getting into here <laughs> and, uh, and so uh, so he he did so uh i went to charlie birch gave him 400 the bucks state's attorney the state's Allen attorney County, who yeah. practiced law at the time so he he wrote us up a little boilerplate you know uh, incorporation mm-hmm. s corp and so um so the billy bob teeth company was founded you know, late October 28th, 1994, about a week after we met. And, um, and, you know, I had no money. So, we, you know, so there's no, you know, how do you start a company with no money, like zero money, like nothing. And so. You got to figure out what to make, way to make, how to teeth. do it, how to, how to make it, how to make the teeth, how <laughs> to get, how to get going. inventory. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, Rich, Rich said, you know, come over. He was, he was staying at this house off of campus over here so i showed up you know on whatever day it was and so he had this white lab coat that he that he gave me and it had a name steve embroidered in it and it was from a student who had been there the year before and so he gave me a tackle box and he says now you have to look like a, a dental student i said okay yeah and uh, i know this play and so 
I went in with my tackle box like the other dental students, and that dental school got the student that didn't know it had. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know about this. Yeah. <laughs> so so are you going to class? Or no. What are you doing? All no. I'm doing is it's, going into the dental lab. And learning and how I to make, make these teeth. Make, and learning how to make Billy Bob teeth in the <laughs> dental lab. So so the the fall semester... Of 1994, I was the bastard student at the at the dental school, and um, and so I made den- uh, the Billy Bob teeth back there, and I would sit in the very back of the lab, and I had my little tackle box, and I, and I uh, had a good set of dentures that Richard made that was 99% done, mm-hmm. and and I was making Billy Bob teeth back there, and when the lab professor would come in, and walk through to see what everybody was working on. I'd take all my Billy Bob teeth and I'd put them in the tackle box and shut it, and I'd hold the, like the denture yeah. like I'm putting this incisor in this thing. You're doing great work, Steve. Keep yeah, <laughs> exactly. And uh, and so that was the same denture I used like the the whole entire semester. So um, I wound up making Billy Bob teeth, and then I would make teeth all week at the dental school, and then Rich and I would on weekends we'd go sell them for twenty dollars a piece to fast eddies or rusties or whatever whatever bar so we, how would you do that like well I mean, that's i didn't know how you know i like i said i had, I had no people skills and i watched rich mm-hmm. and watch rich convince people that wearing these teeth was fun and cool and that that they could have some some of this for twenty dollars and so we had no packaging, no nothing. Like I, you know, you know, didn't even have business. Like cards. you just hand them, like yes, <laughs> right out of a, right out of your fanny pack. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, so it was pretty unorthodox to say the least at the beginning. And I remember, like the first first night, we we made like a hundred dollars selling these. We're like, oh my god. Yeah. Like my net worth just went up twenty percent. <laughs> you know. Yeah. And. Uh, and so I remember that the first night we made a hundred dollars. So you're of, wearing them out. You're like at a bar. You're yes, wearing. You're them. wearing them, and then, and then you'd go. You'd, you'd go talk to people, and then you would profile them, right? And you'd you'd like, yeah, you know, two of those two of those four guys over there, they would buy these from me. Mm-hmm. And you so, guys were both big. Well, like, we're jacked. Yeah, yeah. both of us were yeah. lifting, dieting. Yeah, we were yeah. jacked. I think weren't you guys like wearing overalls all out the time? And stuff we, like we, we, we would go into these high class bars, and we'd be in overalls with no t shirts on. <laughs> and and, of and right out of the gym, and so um, so any anyhow uh, anyway uh, we went we went state to state and I don't know we did state fairs, we did bars. Uh-huh. Uh, w- one of our favorite target areas was actually used car lots. Used, uh, used car lots. We we figured out that used car salesmen were great great customers, uh-huh. and and so when you'd go to places. You know, you want a captive audience. You know, when you go, when you, when you, if you try to sell, let's say, in an elevator, you know, you have to impress that pe- person and do that whole entire thing in 30 seconds, mm-hmm. right? It's very difficult. Not to say it couldn't be done, but difficult. And then, but when you go to a used car sales lot, there's 12, 15 people with outgoing personalities standing around that are bored. Right? right, you got this captive audience, so we started preying on these used car lots, and we we got to where we could sell four or five hundred dollars. So would you go up there and act like you're going to buy a car? Yeah, oh yeah, you, but you'd have those teeth. Yeah, we, they didn't want to say anything. No, <laughs> so so what you do is you go into the used car lot. You know, you're in your overalls and you're jacked, and uh, 
and you got your Billy Bob teeth in, and you go start looking at the Mercedes or whatever is completely out of your price range <laughs> to a normal person. And then no one wants to deal with you, right? No. <laughs> they're, so, they're fighting. So they're, they're pushing they're, each other. To, you know, you go, you take They're it. positioning <laughs> themselves not to have to deal with you. So we're out there, and so we're standing around. So then the low man on totem pole, who's actually going to be the very first customer, he actually comes out there because they make him, and they're all watching. Mm-hmm. So you you say some really stupid stuff, like, you know, uh, I just got my license back. The judge finally gave it back, and uh, and, uh, and, and uh, I want to go on a test drive. Or you can say, like, you know, uh, you, you, you said incredibly stupid things. Mm-hmm. And you say it loud enough that the other people can hear it. Yeah. So they're rolling, laughing. Because you guys are being loud and hundred percent. Oh yeah, we're yes. we're, we're so living lo- large. <laughs> and so then, when you get behind the vehicle with a guy, you take your teeth out, and you show him. Now he's in the circle. He's right. he's in he's he's in the club. You're like, hey man, we're just playing a joke on your buddies in there. You know, uh-huh. you go along with this for a little bit. Oh, oh wow yeah and then you put the teeth back in yeah and then you start saying really stupid stuff like you know you're you know you're you're married to some superstar and you just stay in you know you you know you got food stamps you want to pay you make your first payment with food stamps <laughs> you're saying these stupid things and these other people are just rolling laughing yeah and then you go and then you go inside with the guy and you could do hand-to-hand combat with everybody else in the room <laughs> And now he's in on it. So yeah, now he yeah. says, oh, I want to take you to the credit manager. Yeah, yeah. I think this guy should buy that new Lexus out there. And this other guy's like, this idiot. Don't what they, the hell kind yeah. of rookie is this guy? Yeah. You, you know, you know what? that guy doesn't wear shoes or whatever. So you, you then crush everybody in that whole office because now you have the inside track. Mm-hmm. And then when you show them they're fake, they all buy them. All of them buy them. <laughs> like, yeah. like now, any and they're lending each other money uh-huh. to buy them. And so, we were we we would in an hour make five six hundred bucks mm-hmm. at some of these car lots we were going into, and you know, doing this incredibly ridiculous scene that we're you know. Anyway, I'll tell you a great story. So, um, and I see it every time I drive by this the Weber Chevrolet down there off of like two two fifty five. We pull in there one time, and you know you, but you can't obviously hit the same place more than right. once, right? So we pull in there the first time, and we're and we're selling, and we've been at a we've been at a restaurant in in Missouri, and we sold in this restaurant and caused a big huge ruckus in there. We left, <laughs> we went across we went across the river to this to this sales lot, and we start hand to hand combat, and these guys, and we 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 usually kind of stick together. You didn't want to really divide your forces up when you're in there <clears throat> so but we kind of got a little split up and i turned around at one point and looked over at rich and rich had a couple salesmen at one end of the building and and i had some others that i was selling and i looked over and rich is getting handcuffed over there by a policeman <laughs> and i'm like what the hell yeah. and so you talk about you know bone in the deal you know so um so I go over there just as they're putting Rich in a car in a cop car, and uh, I'm like, "What? What happened?" You know, and Rich is like, "Parking tickets." 
So, so he, had, he had like 5,000 unpaid parking tickets in Missouri. Yeah. And someone called the police on us for, yeah. you know, that and we ran him. That, that we were trying to sell the Billy Bob teeth to. Yeah. And um, so there is a downside to being, you know, kind of unorthodox in your, in, your, in your business career. And so, yeah, handcuffs kind of screws any deal that you got going with a couple guys, you know, when they break the handcuffs out. So, so. I followed them over to the police station. By the time I got there, Richard already talked his way out of it. <laughs> and he was walking down the sidewalk as I pulled up to the police station. Oh, wow. He talked his way out of it because one of them was something. That. Was, and that was just the yeah, skills he had. It was the people skills he had. Yeah. It was insane, the, the skills this guy had. So a lot of this rubbed off on me and i was just like i was just like a, a clean slate for you know to learn how to sell and i knew that was one of the things about being in the nfl that i wanted i knew that to be really successful i would have to be liked and i'd mm -hmm. have to have people skills and um you you couldn't just be an incredible athlete i wasn't going to chances are that would never be me and so i've always needed these people skills that i watched rich just he just oozed with confidence and you know if you can convince yourself to do something you can convince others if you can't convince yourself it's not going to work and when i looked at you know later in life when i'm before i started the billy bob teeth company i looked at the you know the really successful people and they all had lots in common you know they they had you know multiple revenue streams they all had they all had incredible confidence and most of them were in sales. Most of the people that were successful that like I wanted to, to mm -hmm. mirror. And um, and so I needed. I knew I needed these things. I didn't have them. And how do you get this? And I was just so fortunate that Rich came into my life at that point in time in 1994 when he did. So then, how do you go from? Eventually, the gig was probably up at SIU. I mean, are they, they, they catch yeah. on to yeah. you. How does that? I mean, <laughs> I mean, how do you go into mass production of them? And well, one of the one, of the, you know, um, so I we I had produced several thousand pair of Billy Bob teeth <laughs> at SIU. Just one pair at a time. Uh, one pair at a time. Away. I, yeah, I, I, little, I, your I, own little sweatshop. I guarantee you, I was the hardest working kid in there, and I wasn't <laughs> even a student. And uh, anyway, so I remember, um, so ultimately the gig was up and uh, there, were, there was a, another student there that had seen Rich and I selling these Billy Bob teeth at a bar. Mm -hmm. And um, and Rich talked to her and I'm like, man, that's not good. You know, I remember the, my little spider sense tingled. That's not good. Yeah. And you know what? Here's another one where football saves me. So uh, one of the students... Uh, I won't say his name, but one of the students, okay, his name was Dwayne. So one of the students at the school had played football against me. Uh -huh. He was a defensive lineman from Illinois State, and that poor sucker had tried to tackle me a few times <laughs> in college. We never, ever, I never lost a game against Illinois State. Uh -huh. <laughs> I had, I lost the state championship there on their field, and I had axe to grind with them, and every other game I ever played there, I just completely dominated <laughs> Anyway, well, Dwayne had played against me, and I became friends with him. And he's a big, gold, 250-pound guy, great guy. Well, he overhears another student telling the dean that Rich Bailey has a friend of his making goofy, fake teeth in the lab. <laughs> and so he tells Rich, 
Well, I, I kind of forgot about it. Rich could get in trouble for this. Oh, maybe major trouble. I, I, major. That part, I kind of forgot about no, that. No, yeah. the, the stakes were so high. I couldn't compromise. For him. <laughs> for him. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't compromise him. Yeah. And um, and me being even me being in there compromised him, mm-hmm. and so um, it was very important that um, I exit the school, you know, without making a, a without a problem. So, Rich, I'm in the back of this lab, making Billy Bob teeth, <clears throat> and uh, you sat in the very back because when the you know when the lab instructor would come in, he'd obviously come into the front door, so you need the most time to be able to put your Billy Bob teeth into the tackle box. <laughs> so, so you're far away from the door as possible. So, the door opens to the lab, and Rich says to me, um, Jonah. I looked up. There's 20 people in there. He says five O. Well, everything we would talk was in code. Yeah. Five O means police, Cops, yeah. right? And police can mean not just literally police. Right. It means authority, authority something <laughs> yeah. bad. Put your head down, get out of Dodge. So I really calmly put my Billy Bob teeth in the tackle box and snapped it. And I walked out, out of the out out of the um, out of the door and I went into the bathroom and shut the door and took my lab coat off, put it inside that tackle box. And then I heard the door bust open, and there was people looking for me in the school. Uh-huh. And I knew this was the end. <laughs> so I picked up my – I waited for – I paused. I waited for about a minute and a half, two minutes. And I calm, calmly you know, carried my tackle box and walked out. And I, and I wrote this in my book. I looked over my shoulders at this hallway knowing that I would never see it again. Yeah. And I uh, walked out. But by that point in time – the company had just started to make enough where I could buy the acrylic and the, the vacuform machines mm-hmm. and, and, the, and, the, and the material to make these at my mom and dad's house. So can, I, can you imagine if that was now, like today, and like they're like, they, they decide, well, let's check the cam- let's check the surveillance cameras. Oh, yeah. And they check them like all these days. There's this dude in the back <laughs> just making the, he's just back there making, making these, these teeth. hours upon hours. Hours. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was like the worst student. Yeah, so I, I could never ever finish that denture that I had all semester long. So so then you you, you buy the equipment, you buy, buy the, the materials. You, you're going to set it up. up at your parents' house. Yeah, at Galloway. my parents' log cabin. I, yeah. I built a uh, I built up in the attic. I built a, a lab, uh-huh. and I started paying people to help me make these Billy Bob teeth. And then I knew that the company would remain small until I could focus on selling. And I knew the money. And the success came from being successful in sales. And so anybody can make things, but not everybody can sell things. Right. And then you have to get it shipped and you have to get it built and all these other, the whole chain. But I knew one, one link at a time I had to become a good salesman. And I couldn't do that if I was in production. So I start hiring people, you know, friends of mine. Um, my very best one that I hired was actually the equipment manager on the football team. Uh, his name was Casey. And, you know, equipment managers are just the most loyal human beings right. that, that on the planet. Right. And, and they, they're diligent. They don't want all this glory. They just want to be part of something, and they want to, they want to make people proud, and they want to help. And just the best human beings, if, if you, you know, when you're hiring people, uh, to look for if this sort of, you know, category. So I hired him, and, and, uh, and then several more and more and more. And it, within two years... I have like 18 to 20 people working in my mom and dad's log cabin. <laughs> and um, our last year, 
that we ran the business out of my mom and dad's house, we grossed $1.8 million. Wow. Out of mom and dad's log cabin. Yeah. (laughs) That That, is a lot of fake teeth, brother. That didn't even have running water like (laughs) six years before this. Yeah, yeah. Um, So uh, what are you doing with them at that time? Are you able to share? Where where are people placing on? The internet wasn't around. No, there There was was no no social media and stuff like that. None of that. So it was it was it was a different deal. I ran, I ran a phone into the kitchen, and I put a phone line into the kitchen, and I put a an answering machine on the counter, and that was our shipping department. And um, <laughs> they have no idea that it's a it's an answering machine ringing in a log cabin, <laughs> right? Right. And if my dad was cooking, you know, breakfast, and it rang, he would pick it up, and. <laughs> And if mom was walking five, by, the he'd phone, be like five bears. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. <laughs> and uh, so, um, so yeah, it's just just a beautiful story. I don't know that you could start a company this way today, yeah. as the world exists. I don't know that you could. It was I was very very fortunate that I was built for the way the economy was and the way things were in this country at that point. Well, you would have found a way, but I would have, story. but it would have been very difficult and not nearly as fun. Well, <laughs> so how so? How are you advertising these things at that at the time at in the, the, in the, when you're in the cabin? How are you how well, are you getting the, the name out? I embraced hardship, so I knew that this business is going to be tough and mm-hmm. rough, and I'm better for it than anyone on the planet. That's what I embraced. That's mm-hmm. what I had written on the wall. So I put seventy five thousand miles on my truck the first year, driving two shows, driving all over wow. the country, selling them. And then when I would sell them, I would give out business cards, which I was printing at the newspaper office in, in Hardin. And <laughs> I would give these business cards out, which would run ring back the phone. And, and I'm, I'm guessing those probably had a picture of you chiseled in the overalls with those teeth in, probably. Well, something the, like later, that. Le, the later on business cards did, but the first ones were just really cheap ink that was just uh-huh. printed on. Uh, and here's another good story. So Rich and I are selling... Billy Bob Teeth one night down in St. Louis, and this, this guy is sitting there and says, "Man, you guys should get on the Stephen DC show. Uh-huh. It's a huge radio show. It's, it was out of St. Louis. I remember, but it was syndicated yeah. through about 12, 15 states. And and he says, "I'm a janitor. I work there. You guys should get on the show." And, <laughs> and Rich, this is the awesome thing about Rich. Rich really saw opportunity that other people wouldn't see. And mm-hmm. he was you don't you don't think there's so much opportunity in any given situation until you're someone like Rich and you pry into every last aspect. He's like, Oh, you know, when are you working there? Uh, well, you know, I work there tomorrow. Oh. So you're a janitor working in their building tomorrow. Yeah. And wouldn't you like to have a set of these teeth right now? <laughs> go, yeah. Well, what do I gotta do? I don't have twenty dollars. Yeah. No, but you got a key to the back door of that building, right? And so Rich talks this guy into letting us into the Stephen DC show. Now we're not on their script, right? Right, right. <laughs> and and so so now there's a chance that it's not gonna work. But you don't know this unless you give hundred percent, you mm-hmm. figure it out. So I call my mom from a payphone that night. I said, Mom, um, we're getting ready to maybe get on a huge radio talk show tomorrow morning. So you be ready by that phone. And when that phone rings, and it will, I want you to say Billy Bob Teeth, and then and then they're they're gonna say something, and you're gonna say, uh, "Can I have your name and phone number?" 
and they're going to give you their name and phone number, and then you can say, I'm sorry, but we're going to have to call you back. And you hang that phone up because there was no call waiting or any of this stuff at that point. <laughs> and you didn't get, want your mom getting get some it big, long conversation with them. Yeah, yeah, get off the phone. <laughs> yeah. Get them yeah. off. The, get their phone number. Get them off the phone. Yeah. Okay, because there's millions of people listening to this radio show. This mm-hmm. is probably our first big break that we did. This one was. So Rich and I are down there, and we're, we're driving this car called the Hoopty, which was a 1981 Ford 400 station wagon with the wood side. Yeah, oh, and yeah. I don't know if you ever saw that car in the I county. I didn't see yours, but I know those cars. Yeah, yeah so we'd taken a torch to it, cut the roof of it off. <laughs> had an air, it had air horn. It had a big, huge steel. It had a railroad tie on the front bumper, <laughs> some deer horns on it and stuff. <laughs> anyway, and anyway, so we, so we were driving this car, and we had our overalls overalls on and stuff and so we stayed out in st louis probably sleep in the car we did this all the time mm-hmm. and um the next morning we come to this said door and by god it opens <laughs> and we go in there and there's that guy winking like you didn't you, right. you didn't you didn't see me we walk in this this radio station and we're jacked i think we did you know 500 push-ups <laughs> out, in, out in the parking lot we come in and Here's this big old glass wall. Steve and DC are on the other side of it. And they're shitting in their pants. I you mean, your overalls, your jet, you got the Billy Bob. Oh, these, yeah. These we, got, we, uh, we got these. We, at the time, we had these hats that had nappy, nappy uh, hair on it. And so uh, we, they think that they've offended someone from a trailer park in Granite City. <laughs> and, and, and they're about ready to get their asses beat. Right. Like right. they've never been beat. And we, and we, and I mean, we're intimidating them through this glass right. there's just a little door right here between yeah, us yeah and their their faces are white <laughs> right they really think this is about to now end. are they talking about it on the no, show at that no, point no 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 no, no they're they're talking about something else a football because game or something stuttering through here, something yeah. and here comes these two hillbillies yeah, yeah. anyway and and so these guys and it's live on in like right. 10 12 states and these these poor two guys are thinking they're about ready to get beat right. on their own show yeah so Rich opens the door and starts to walk in. And they're only five, seven feet away. Yeah. And Rich says, I still remember. What's the matter, Steve? The cat got your tongue? <laughs> and I said, uh, do, do I know you? You know? <laughs> and, uh, and so, and here's the thing about the Billy Bob Teeth. You know, you learn this. There's, there's a point, there's a law of diminishing return. And at some point in time, you've pulled this prank too far for what your intended purpose is. Mm-hmm. You don't want to get to that point. So, like, if you if you're wearing the teeth, and you want to get a girl's phone number with the teeth, right? Works very good for that. If you wanted to do that, you don't wear the teeth for very long, mm-hmm. and then you take them off and you show them that you're actually a sensible human being that looks pretty good, and then you put them right back. It happens to be wearing these Billy Bob teeth yes. out in public. Yes, that's that sensible person. Yes. <laughs> If you keep your teeth in too long, that girl yeah. wants nothing to do with right. you. She wants to go the other way. If you're trying to sell somebody one-on-one, you keep them in for a while to impress them and then in, and imprint on them, and then you show them. If you want to sell a whole crowd of people and, and you have a, a, a person that you're using there it's in the bunch, and people love getting in on a prank on them, like if you see a girl, uh, you see a bunch of girls, and you walk up to them with the teeth at the time, and you show them all their, you know, you show them all your teeth, and you say something kind of goofy. Then you kind of go to one of the girls, if she's by herself, and you pull them out. And you say, "Hey, I want to pull a prank on your girls. 
You say, oh, yeah. And you put them back in, and mm. then she brings you back to the crowd. And, and then like she, she's interested. And, yeah, yeah, and then yeah, she'll yeah. say whatever. Yeah. And you're like, well, you know my friend Sally. And you're like, Sally, I haven't seen you since the state fair. <laughs> you don't state. remember that? Yeah. Cause you're around all your friends right now. You don't remember making out in the back of my truck. And then you know, you, you, you know, and then they're all laughing and looking at each other because yeah. you know one one of them, you know. So if you're trying to do different things, anyway. So at the point that he goes in there, they're thinking they're about ready to get beaten up. Of course, I pull the teeth off and show them through the glass that they're fake. Mm-hmm. And then they realize, okay, we're going to live today. We're not going <laughs> to die, and we're going to have fun on our radio show because yeah. this is going to be special. So then, then they start talking like, "Oh my God! I thought we we're just getting ready to get beat up. Who did I offend?" And <laughs> these guys come in here looking like brick shit houses and with these terrible teeth. And did I offend them? And then they show me they're fake, you know. And then, like, what are those things, you know? And they didn't realize we sell them, right? Right. So then we start. Basically, they I don't. They don't realize you're. They're, you're giving. They're giving you the best free marketing uh, in the entire uh, world. In the entire <laughs> world, because they were feared for their lives. <laughs> right. And so. So I get on the mic, and I start saying our 800 number, you know. <laughs> like, yeah, Steve, these are Billy Bob Teeth, 1-800-457-6249. You want a pair, don't you, Steve? And, you you know, and uh, you know, for 1995, you yeah. can have a pair, too. And I'm, you know, whatever. I'm saying whatever. I said that stupid phone number like 20 times, right? Yeah. And um, anyway, so um, we get done. And we do our damage. We give them all Billy Bob teeth, and they're mm-hmm. having all this fun. They're laugh- They were still on air laughing about these teeth. Like, because again, they're free advertising. If they're going to wear them out to millions, of you know, they're going to go do like yeah. live feeds and things like that. They're yeah. going to put them in to, to, to millions of yes. people. None of this would have happened had Rich, at that bar, said to that guy, "What is it exactly you do for Stephen to see? You mm-hmm. know, how do you know them? Like why? Like yeah. like where yeah. is where where is the opportunity here?" There's opportunity around everyone all the time. You just right. don't, you're not in tune to understand it for what it is. So um, I called home several hours later. The, the line was busy. So that's good. So I call <laughs> home again six hours later. <laughs> line's still busy, right? This is just their home residential phone My, number. Oh, <laughs> right. So 653 <laughs> something. Yeah, yeah. So we come home that uh the next day and i walk up the house there's a phone guy in front of my house i'm like what's going on she's like oh the phone's been out what i walk around the side of the house you know i had the the phone line run in the back window uh-huh one of our mom and dad's sheep got their horn stuck on the, <laughs> on the phone line and tore the phone line off the house oh no <laughs> anyway i'm sitting there and i'm like i can't believe this you know uh, you know, what a failure, you know, whatever. The the phone guy no sooner touches those wires together, the phone rings. My dad picks it up. It's someone wanting to buy a pair of Billy Bob. They've been calling for like nine hours. <laughs> yeah. So we still wind up doing about $2,000 uh-huh. of retail business, which for when you're starting with nothing, yeah. all these people said, well, did you ever think you're going to go out of business? Did you ever whatever? Like, you, you know, when you start a company with 400 bucks, you're like, really? How are you going <laughs> to go, go out of business? Yeah. You know, the first, you know, within, when I first started, I went to my bank, right? And uh, I said, I need a credit card machine. They laughed at me. Mm-hmm. They, there was, there was, nobody would 
give us a credit card machine. The second year we're in business, um, the second year we're in business, a bank is will, willing to sell me a credit card terminal for $2,000 and charge me like 7 8% or something like <laughs> Sounds that. Sounds about right, doesn't it, yeah. Ross? Yeah. And then, <laughs> and then uh, they would only give us $10,000 a month. No matter how much business we did, they'd only put $10,000 a month into our account. The rest of it would go into a bank that gave them interest. Yeah. So within, within three months, we start bouncing checks. And so I'm like, how in the hell is this happening? Because I just did, we just did all this business at the show, this car show, like this weekend. How, you know, how are we bouncing payroll checks? Well, they were keeping it. They were only putting ten thousand dollars a month into our bank account, and and they we'd already done a hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> and so, finally, after that, our local bank, when when I when I went to them to say, how can this be bouncing? We've done all this with our credit card machine. Is it not routing into our account? Mm-hmm. Then finally the bank said, uh, "You've done, you know, one hundred and sixty thousand dollars in four months. Yeah, we'll we'll take your account." And so then we got our credit card terminal. So, so anyway, it was quite a struggle, you know, starting where we started, and you know, and you know, sheep pulling, you know, phone lines out <laughs> oh, of the that, house. That that happens at every major corporation. Hundred percent. You know, I'm <laughs> you sure. Know, damn sheep have always been a problem 100%. in the corporate world. Yeah. So when you get it, how long does it take you before you get like a, a facility where you're you're out of the the the, uh, the log cabin and into a facility? So we um, we outgrow my mom and dad's house, and I I buy um, I buy a bankrupted um, boat shop in town, mm-hmm. and um, and uh, they the lady had gone to jail and um the building had been taken by the irs for tax liens and so i i uh, paid off all these liens and paid off all the creditors and paid the irs some money and i got the i got a couple acres in this boat boat house um there's not much to choose from in calhoun county as far as you know commercial property and stuff so i actually brought an excavator i put in a twelve thousand foot shipping facility and by 1999, uh, I had bought a factory in Taiwan, and I was making these things by the millions. Wow. So um, my biggest year with the Billy Bob Teeth would have been about the year 2000. We shipped 2.7 million Billy Bob Teeth out of my facility in Hardin. <laughs> out of Hardin, Illinois. Uh, Hardin, yeah. Illinois, yeah. Town of 1,100 people. Yeah. Wow. But so, just kind of skipping a little bit. So... I mean, then you just kind of went into the novelty business, right? Yes. Um, um, in 1997, um, Rich leaves the company. Okay. And so did he become a dentist? Did he yes. go on to Yeah, he graduated. Yeah. And so why did he leave? He Well, Rich and I, uh, I decided that I needed to find a wife. Mm-hmm. And so I decided that um, I wanted a wife from Australia. So, <laughs> is it this easy? I didn't know that. <laughs> I'm gonna write this down. Ross. Yeah, you, you need yeah, to. Yeah, I want can, a wife from Australia. Yeah, you can read it in a book. So, <laughs> so yeah, everybody tells you how to do it. So I decided that I wanted a wife from Australia, and we had a I had a four month window after um, Halloween of 1990. Because that's your big that's your big yes. Billy Bob Halloween season. took every, all of our inventory. Yeah, and then um, we didn't have any commitments until this huge trade show called Toy Fair in downtown New York City at the Javits Convention Center. And that was in February. So from 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 the end of Halloween to February, I had this window where I could go meet someone from another country and bring them here and maybe make maybe make them my wife. <laughs> so so I didn't know what country to find this person from. So uh-huh. I had looked all over the world. 
and we had we had decided on South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, or Argentina. You said weed is who, Rich. Who, who, Rich oh. was my wingman. Oh, okay. <laughs> so 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 uh, Rich and I um, went. Rich was my wingman. And I went wife shopping in Australia mm-hmm. in uh, in the fall of nineteen ninety. I didn't even know this was a thing, Ross. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Doing so, wife, wife shopping. Yeah. Wife shopping, yeah. In a different country. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, we we um we took um we took two hundred dollars with us. I had no credit card. I had no cell phone. And you had money at that time. You had plenty of money. We you were, were very yeah. successful at that time. Well the, 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 the deal was was you know, you've read about me financially on the internet. Mm-hmm. Everyone wants to you know, they blow you know, they blow everything out of proportion. The media does, right? So, Rich and I were one. You know, I looked at the talents I had and where I could be successful, and and how does how can we make this into a financial success? Well, one of the things that I figured I was good at was getting publicity, and um, and so um, we within months. I got articles written about us in the Post Dispatch, Washington Times, New York Times. We were on the Today Show. We were, we were everywhere on the media in the late '90s, and you know, Rich was at the time even still part of this. He was still a dental student, and then he graduated dental school. And you know, you have this college football player and this dental, you know, a, a guy has a just graduated dental school, um, selling rotten teeth. Right? Doesn't mm-hmm. you know? He's cra- you know. Not a, your typical story. So um, every time one of these would come out, mom and dad's phone would ring, and these these women would be <laughs> wanting Jonah's phone number, uh-huh. right? Which I don't have a phone. But um, I just, you know, and I've been poor my whole life. And the perception was we were making millions of dollars, and we weren't at that point in time, but mm-hmm. we were filthy rich. And... I just did not want to have someone meet me for the wrong reason, and uh, and 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 this was going to happen. It was inevitable. It, no matter where I'd meet someone, the idea that money's going to come into this is going to happen. And I grew up with no shoes, you know, in a log cabin, and I don't want this to be the attraction someone has for me. So I figured that I wanted to meet someone. And I wanted them to have no idea about my business, about about money. Mm-hmm. I wanted someone to want me for me, and to follow me for me, and and to come be part of my life for me. And I really couldn't do that with someone from this country. I, I, it wouldn't ha- it wouldn't work. I had to meet someone from another country, far away, and they had to have no idea if I was living in a trailer in Indiana or what. Right. They, and so I went out of my way to impress upon people when i traveled that we had no money and we had when we flew over there uh in the 747 um we we hashed out parameters um on rules of engagement when we were there and we 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 had a list of 10 things we had to do when we were in australia and a list of 10 things we couldn't do and we both got to pick five of each (laughs) and uh, of these rules and so we couldn't stay in a place more than 24 hours unless there was a woman involved. We had to, you know, we had to work out at every gym we passed. Um, <laughs> we, we we couldn't pay to sleep anywhere. Um, we couldn't pass up free food. Uh-huh. So if we saw a roadkill, that's free food. <laughs> Road uh, roadkill. We ate so much roadkill. <laughs> and so um um 
one of the things that Rich, one of the one of the rules. Well, you, that, that probably wasn't that huge of a deal to you. No, it wasn't. But I, I don't know Rich, but I'm assuming he's a dental student. He's that's probably a big deal to him. Well, Rich wanted. I rubbed off on Rich, uh-huh. and he rubbed off on me, and it made us both much better, more well-rounded people. And so Rich embraced. He loved five bears and how I grew up and <laughs> not having money and yeah. he embraced, he loved this and um, the ridiculousness that the things that my parents would spend money on and they do nothing but read books about in- information instead of like getting a job and paying your electricity bill you're reading books about how something was invented in France in 1700s or whatever I mean it's incredible um, anyway we went to Australia and um I don't really know how I got on this topic, but so we were there, and I met. I wound up meeting Honeybuns uh, nine days into the trip, and um, and uh, uh, of course I met her wearing Billy Bob teeth, and uh, that was one of the things I had to meet my wife when I was wearing Billy Bob teeth, and um, and so uh, she traveled with us some um, on this trip, and then she winds up coming. Did she ask? Like at one point, does it come? Why are you here? Or are you just saying we're just you know just backpacking around or what? I mean, does well, she ask why you came to Australia? You, you know, it's 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 a it's a great love story, and <laughs> it really is. I wrote a I wrote a movie script on it. It'll probably uh-huh. be a movie script one day. So when she meets me, she has no idea that I've completely profiled her, mm-hmm. and that I am looking for exactly what she is. Where did you actually meet her there? I met her at the Victory Club in Brisbane, Australia. And that's uh, like a bar? A huge nightclub. Okay. And it was the most prominent one in Brisbane. And we, we showed up there on a Thursday night. How do you knuckleheads get in? Well, that was, you know, that's a great story. Rich, so, I'm guessing Rich. <laughs> Rich, I, I, so I knew my wife would come from the Outback. Mm-hmm. So we looked in the Outback for her. But the Outback is, there's so few people there. And, um, and so... Um, about nine days into the trip, we, we, we decided to veer back to civilization, and um, we drove the car to the, this big city, which is the second largest one in Australia, called Brisbane. And we were working out at a YMCA at Brisbane, and we're, 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 we've run out of money. So everywhere we went, we had to sell Billy Bob teeth to eat or to, uh, or to fill our gas tank. So I had, we brought 400 pair with us in my backpack. And so it made us this great, you know, hunger is a great motivator for sales. So <laughs> yeah. it made us sell teeth. Sell or die. Yeah, that yeah, works. Yeah, or start. <laughs> so, so we have to sell Billy Bob teeth, and it's a Thursday night. Now, we ask this, um, this guy named Stephen, who we're working out with, uh, we ask him, you know, where's the best club in Brisbane, you know, to meet girls or whatever, and, and uh, to sell these Billy Bob teeth because we sold him a pair in, mm-hmm. this, in this club. So he says, the Victory Club. So we go to this Victory Club on a Thursday night, which is the big happening night there every week. And so I know that my wife won't be in this club on a Thursday night. My wife is at home. She works an accounting <laughs> job. She's, she's living with her mother. She's, she's cleaned the dishes. Um, she's in bed by 9 o'clock, and she's at work early. I, I like how you got her into accounting, so she can just come into the business and do the books. Yes, I like well, that. I, she'd be very organized. <laughs> yeah. It, she, she could be working in a grocery store somewhere, but she's handling money. She's organized. And I know all of this. She's an athlete. She's around five feet tall. She's going to be six to seven years younger than I am. I have all this figured out. 
So again, Mama White, hundred percent breaking everything down. So I'm in this club, and so we go to get in this club. I'm in shorts, and they have a dress code, so they won't let me in. Rich goes in, and I can't get in. So I I then use some people skills and show the and I'm wearing the Billy Bob teeth to this big old bouncer, and I take the Billy Bob teeth off. And he's very impressed with them. Mm-hmm. And I hand him a pair of Billy Bob teeth as I walk in the door, right? So um, so he's not going to stop me and hold his Billy Bob teeth. He's got to kind of make a, he's got to make a choice at that <laughs> right, moment. Right. So I had the mechanical advantage and, and I hit him fast. I hand him the teeth <laughs> as I walk in, right? And so I walk in there and, um, and Rich has already taken the club over. Uh-huh. He's, he's, he's dancing with two very large girls. He's dirty dancing with them in the middle of this floor. He's taking his shirt off. He's all chiseled, ripped. Everyone's cheering him. Yeah. And this is within a minute yeah. of me going in there. And I already see this crowd of, there's three girls that he's already talked to. Mm-hmm. And so this is a great technique. So you go to three girls or a couple girls, and one of these girls is the one that you're really I wanting. should be writing this down, Ross. You should right. really like it. Take it from Rich. He was the pro. I didn't figure this out. And so Rich walks up to these three girls and one of them is very attractive once she turns out to be an undercover police officer. <laughs> and so and so Rich Rich walks up to her, these three girls, and says, Hey, you wanna see something funny? And they're like, What? You know, like, you know, and they look at him, they look at each other, like, Do you know this guy? And he pulls the Billy Bob teeth out of his pocket and puts them in. So they see a good looking guy transfer into buck tooth, whatever. Yeah. And then he takes his hat, spins it around backwards, and pulls his pants up and struts out on the dance floor, and there's two really th- 300 pound girls dancing uh-huh. on this dance floor just by themselves two of them yeah rich goes out there and starts doing the shower dance with him right <laughs> and he start he takes his shirt off and everyone's cheering you know and so these three girls that he's already talked to they're yeah. of course staring at him out there right. right and so then i at that point was his wingman so i walk up to these girl, three girls and i'm like i'm sorry my my friend we're on vacation from australia or from you know we're on holiday from the united states uh-huh. that's the way they say yeah. it well, right there, they love Australia. They love Americans. Mm-hmm. So right there, our stock goes through the right. roof, right? And so, so they're like, yeah, I'm, I see my friend, you know, you know, I've already met you guys. I'm Jonah. You know, that's Rich out there. I shake their hands, you know, like, can I get you ladies a drink, you know, for putting up with my friend? Well, sure. What do you want? So they tell me what they want. So if I'm bringing them a drink, it gives Rich a reason to come back and talk to them, right? Right. And and I don't want any of these girls. I know my, my wife's not going to be here anyway. <laughs> I'm here to sell Billy Bob tea. All right, all right. <laughs> so I go to get this drink for these three girls. So I walk by this huge crowd of people dancing down on this lower stage. I walk to the bar, and I look down, and in the middle of this bunch of people is Honey Buns. Uh-huh. And she's with her roommate, uh, her best friend at the time. And I stopped, and it was kind of like King Arthur moment again. I look back, and I look at her, and she won't make eye contact with the with the, the with the people at the, that are singing. She's really shy, and like way out of place. Mm-hmm. I don't know why this person's here. Right. And I'm like, oh my God, that completely fits the pro t- profile. I'm just checking through this list mentally, mm-hmm. like, you know, I'm watching her for like about two minutes. I'm like, oh my God, if I don't if I don't go talk to her. I'm going to be very pissed at myself. And when you give 100%, you don't put yourself in that situation. So I have to talk to this girl. So I loop down around this crowd, and I walk through the back of them. And, of course, I put my Billy Bob teeth in when I start getting up close right behind her. So I get right behind her and her friend. I start breathing down her friend's neck. 
and I completely <laughs> invade their, their 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 space. And her friend turns around, and Honey Buns turns around. And she's staring right at my teeth, right to her. You know, she's about five foot one. And they whip their heads back around, and I start, you know, hawking. And I said, "Man, I'm real thirsty. Can I have a sip of your beer?" I say that to her, to her friend. Now, I we learned that you you don't want to intimidate the person that you want to connect with. You want to intimidate somebody else. Mm-hmm. They they need to be able to see this from a distance. So I'm saying all this that to her friend. So her friend, who doesn't put up with anything, says, says no. And so I said, I'm sorry, ladies, and I pull the teeth off real, real quick, right? And I said, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just an American on holiday here with my friend. I'm, I'm sorry. I just thought it'd be funny, and it was very uncomfortable. They turned, she turned around, looked the other way. You know, she's so shy. I know that my wife is going to be with somebody. She's not going to be by herself. She's not going to be at a club for sure on a weeknight. And she's never going to talk to a stranger. So I'm, you know, there's all these strikes. Yeah. But by the same token, I know that my wife's going to be with a group of people. So if, you know, so I know, I profiled her enough to know that this could be her. So I go get the drinks for these other girls. And as I'm giving these other girls these, their drinks, Rich has come back from, from dancing out there with these two girls. And just as I'm giving them their drinks, I turn around and there's one empty table in this whole entire place and it's right behind me. And Honey Buns and her friend is sitting down. Uh-huh. And, I'm, and in my mind, I'm thinking, well, they came here because I came here. Well, that wasn't the case at all. <laughs> it was the only empty table. Yeah. But it gave me the confidence to go in for round right. two. So I went, I went in for round two and said to them, you know, I'm so sorry about that back there. You know, you know, shame on me. Can I get you guys a drink just, you know, to say I'm sorry? And so they're like, okay. And so they tell me what they want. So I bring them drinks, and I start talking to her friend. So Honey Buns didn't actually talk to me for more than an hour. She just listened while I talked to her friend. And she could hear kind of how I was and how I talked and how mm-hmm. my, my MO and all this. And so I wound up convincing them at like 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning to go get a cup of coffee. So we went to get a cup of coffee. As we're in this little tiny, we're on this little street, having a cup of coffee at 3 o'clock in the morning in Brisbane, 12,000 miles away from my home. Uh-huh. And, and, um, and as we're getting, just a side story, I've, at this point in my life, I had never asked a girl for her phone number, huh, ever. Wow. And every time we'd gone out, you know, Rich being the matchmaker was always trying to set me up with these girls and stuff. We and I'm like, oh, this is this the normal typical girl. That I can't. That's not for me. Mm-hmm. You know, she needs to marry an accountant. You know, that's not. Yeah. You know, whatever. What about so and so? No. Well, Rich had always tried to get me to ask girls for their phone numbers, and I never could do it because it wasn't genuine. You know, I'm I'm not interested in this person. Mm-hmm. I can't ask for their phone number. And so, when I'm sitting down having coffee, I'm like, this is going to be it. I'm going to ask her for a phone number. This is going to, I'm going to do it. You know, I'm right. First time in my life, I'm going to do it. Yeah. And as I'm sitting here, three o'clock in the morning, Rich comes walking down the sidewalk out in the middle of nowhere in Brisbane, Australia. We're a mile away from that club. Rich comes walking by with these two girls, one on each shoulder. <laughs> and he stops, and the girls keep walking. And he looks over and sees me with, you know, Honey Buns and her friend. Yeah. And of course, Rich knows that Honey Buns is the one I'm interested in. Uh huh. Rich looks, leans over this little fence and says to Honey Buns, my friend is a Neanderthal and he wants your phone number. 
<laughs> I said, brother, I was going to ask her. I was going to do it. He said, I, I, I wasn't going to risk it. Yeah. And so she winds up giving her, me her phone number. And long story short, she comes back to the United States with us. And that's my On wife. That, she came back that from no, that trip. From that trip, yeah. That trip. Like, she, like you didn't go back. And four, she, months, four months later, she, she left Australia. And she came to the United States. And she knew she did not. Rich told her some stories. She didn't know that I was there only looking for a wife. Uh-huh. And it was actually quite touching. When she, she turned 21, um, she turned 21 when we, we were in the city called Darwin in the Northern Territory. And she, she turned 21 and she had to fly back home to go to her job. And, um, and so she was crying. Uh-huh. And, um, and we were, I remember we were on the beach in Darwin looking over this ocean kind of from up above and uh, there's some old cannons there from World War Two, even, and um, and she's crying. And the whole time that that Honeybuns was traveling with us, I wanted to tell, I wanted to be honest with her and tell her, I'm here looking for a wife. That's why I've come here, and I want that person to be you. Mm-hmm. And um, after she she she'd passed the test, and after she'd passed the test. We, she did several things she didn't know what she was doing. Mm. Ate roadkill, walked <laughs> walk barefooted. She did several. She did several things that she had to pass this test, <laughs> and she passed it all. The first night she traveled with us in, in our car, and it was it was insane. We ate a dead kangaroo that Richard hit with a car, and and she helped me cut it up on the hood of the car. And there was a forest <laughs> fire burning on the side of the hill. Yeah. It was it was insane the memory, and so. Um, so I, wa- I wanted to tell her, you know, that I'm, I want to bring you to back to the United States. And so she's crying. And Rich told me the whole time, you can't tell her. She's going to think you're nuts. Mm-hmm. You don't, you haven't won her mom over, you know, he, you know whatever. Yeah. The mom's going to be the obstacle. You, you can't do this. You, the timing isn't right, whatever. Well, finally, when she turned 21, she had to fly back to Brisbane. Because Rich and I, we couldn't stay in one place for more than 24 hours. Right. It's one of our rules. And so she had to, she, she only had so much vacation time, she had to go back to work. And, and so um, I had to break the news to her that this isn't just a fling. I've come here to Australia looking for a wife, uh-huh. and I want you to come back to the United States with me. And she doesn't believe me, but luckily... I've uh, I had a diary that I wrote in every day, and I sure. I flipped back through the pages and gave it to her, mm-hmm. and she read it for herself, like the whole leading up to the trip and yeah. and the whole what I'm looking for and the profile and what this person is and the things that we're gonna do in life and you know anyway so she knew then that it was real, and so she went home and. I got her to sell her car and give notice at work, and she uh, came to the United States on a tourist visa, and I had to marry her within a couple months. Uh-huh. Uh, we got married in my best deer stand in Calhoun County. <laughs> Holy crap. Now, did she know what she was coming back to? Like, Rich had told probably us. probably over there thinking United States yeah, and well, like R- just New York City. <laughs> the thing is, is Rich, Rich had, you know, Rich is her, like pretty much her best friend, uh-huh. and Rich, he told her, the deal he told her about my father five bears and living in a log cabin and the rumors he'd heard about me growing up living on a dirt floor and all mm-hmm. these things yeah. and 
she had a good idea, but you know, you, once you see it, you still can't be ready for it. <laughs> so when we showed up, um, I f- we couldn't come back on the same flight. She couldn't get on the flight I was on. So I laid over in Hawaii for a day or two, and then uh, we landed at LAX the same time. And then we landed in St. Louis at the same time. And my parents were there to pick us up. And my dad was there in full Indian garb. <laughs> he had a headdress on. He had a loincloth on. Complete. My, I, he, he was the full deal. It yeah. was like Dances with Wolves on the Sea <laughs> Concourse. Tatonka. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was a, it was pretty awesome. That's so, amazing story. It's a great one. And yeah. so now you've been married how long? Twenty four years. Wow. At what yeah. what at what point in the relationship, while you were over there, when she got back, did you tell her what you did for a living? Well, I mean, real quick. I mean, she she saw we were selling Billy Bob teeth. You know, yeah. A person doesn't a normal person at that point in the, in the nineties didn't realize that this could be a living, right? Yeah. So she saw what we were trying to do, and she knew about the rules that we had, that we had to sell these teeth to have money, and that we didn't... I mean, like, if Rich and I got separated, which happened many times in Australia, we would have to call home on my 800, on an 800 number. We'd have to call home collect from a payphone, And then my mom or dad would answer the phone at 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning. And then while the operator's saying, will you accept a, a phone call from whatever... I would say, the library in Brisbane. And then she'd say, no, we're not going to accept. And then Rich would call an hour later, and as the, and as the, and as the, 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 the lady on the line saying, will you accept a collect call? My mom or dad would say, he's at, he's at the library in Brisbane. <laughs> that was our pager, huh? I got yeah. pager. I yeah. mean, you can only fake. Like that persona, like what what you took over there with yeah. her for so long. Yeah, yeah I guess I guess a better question would have been when did you tell her that it, you were successful in what well, you did? I, I'm sure I, because you, just, you, I, you, you, you I didn't, didn't want... really. It wasn't until 1997 August when I knew we were going to be incredibly successful. I knew in my heart that we could sell a million pair of teeth and. And I knew that we could make living and I could have animals and a huge cabin and a lake and all these things. I knew in my heart I could. But it wasn't until August at a, at a certain trade show in Las Vegas called the ASD Trade Show. On in the first day, I wrote about $100,000 worth of orders. Now, our company started very slow. Our first full year, we did 60000 in total sales. Total sales. Yeah. That's mom and dad, me and Rich in a full year. Yeah. which was more money than I'd ever made in my life. But in the big scheme of things, it's not some big successful business. And um, it wasn't until I started, I, I opened a factory up overseas and had unlimited production capabilities that you could reach these great heights. Yeah. So I remember at the, I remember at, um, at the Mirage Hotel carrying honey buns i carry her on my hip like a uh, like you carry a little kid you know I was, at the time i was you know benching 400 pounds she weighed you know 100 she'd wear she i'd carry her around on my hip and uh, in my overalls no shirt on and I'd tell everybody it's my sister and the whole thing and so um i remember walking across the, there was a bridge i don't know if it's still there in the middle of the mirage hotel and there's a little little river runs underneath it and we had sold it was the first day of the, the asd trade show which was the first trade show we'd done and um, a wholesale trade show. And 
I sold a little over a hundred thousand dollars. I think it was one hundred seventeen thousand dollars of orders. So I took in the first day wow. of product that I didn't have to make anymore. Someone else made them, and um, and I could replicate this and do this over and over and over and over, and get better at it than this. Even this is the raw form, and I had all these orders and this money shoved in the front pocket of my of my overalls, just completely full <laughs> of money, and. Um, which happened a lot. And I was carrying her on my hip, and I remember stopping on that bridge and putting her down and, I, and telling her we've made it. And uh, we were, um, we, we had just gotten married the month before. So uh, we'd only been married for about three weeks before that trade show. But it was evident to me that nothing could stop us from having a multi-million-dollar business, and yeah. and we've we've done over a million dollars of sales every year since 1998. Unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And so now, what all? Now, like I said, you now you've just started making all kinds of different. Like people will yeah. bring inventions no, to I, you. I, I, make, I, I, I heard something I didn't know about. Now you guys, listen to this, Russ. One of their biggest sellers now is teeth that look like. Super perfect teeth. They're perfect teeth, yeah. So people are buying them and going, like, just going yeah. out, like, not over trying the, to be funny. Teeth. Not trying to be funny, no. just yeah. going out with perfect, like, almost like yeah. veneers or something, but they're these fake, like... Well, crazy. you know, opportunity, like I said, if your listeners only get one thing from me, it's that opportunity comes in millions of different packages. You just have to understand what it is and just try opening some of them and being a little open-minded when you do. Every show I'd go to and sell Billy Bob teeth, Without exception, every show, someone would come up at the end with their hand over their mouth and say, what's your nicest pair of teeth you have? Mm. And then I, I got the license for Austin Powers teeth in 1998 for all those movies, and I sold millions of those. So you made them for the actual movies? Yes. Okay, and then you were able to sell and them? And I could, part of my license was I could sell underneath that brand and sell through whatever. And it was the second Austin Powers movie. My Austin Powers teeth was the number one licensed product in the U.S. It sold more Austin Powers teeth than Hasbro sold lightsabers that year. Damn. So, um, so anyway, um, um, I forget where I was. So, so uh, we kind of talked talk about, about the, the perfect, teeth. the perfect teeth. So, so people would come up to me, and their teeth are jacked up. They've been on drugs. Their teeth are missing. And um, they're like, what are your nicest ones? So I was always selling them the Austin Powers teeth, but they weren't intended to be veneers or be mm-hmm. thin. And um, so about 12 years ago, um, about 12 years ago, I had the insight and the foresight to know that I didn't, I was uncomfortable having my company be just a novelty company that sells funny gags items. And at the time, I mean, we we're selling millions of dollars a year of just novelty goofy fun stuff but i wanted to sell something that people had to buy and items that were utilitarian in purpose so my first spin-off of this was the instant smile teeth so actually the first line of teeth i made was called i called secure smile which i trademarked and i sold that brand to another customer and then i then followed up with doing instant smile teeth so um, I started making veneers. You know, um, you look at what your assets are and what your strengths are and weaknesses are. And I, I own my own factory. I got the best factory in the world to make fake teeth, mm-hmm. the very best. And so we, I started making these veneers, and it's difficult because they have to be so thin because if they're thick, you know, they push your it lips out. Yeah. So 
it took me quite a while, uh, probably several years before I made the product that we're selling now. But it's my number one product. And, uh, wow, and in, two, in 2017, I, I took it even a step further. And I, des- I invented and designed a temporary tooth. So um, this product that I sell called the Complete Your Smile Temporary Tooth Replacement Kit. And it has, uh, I'll give you some, it has about 50 teeth in it in these little strips and they're different shades. So if a person's missing a tooth, you pull this package out and you match these shades of teeth with your existing teeth. And then you, it has scissors in the kit. You cut off a plastic tooth that fits in the space of your missing tooth that's the same shade as the other teeth. And then you put it in boiling water and it molds right in place. Well, you know what? I would like to say dental school paid off for him. <laughs> isn't, isn't that crazy? That's, isn't that crazy? Yeah. And, you know, even a step further. Shout I sell, out to SIU Dental School. Yeah, thank you. I, I sell I sell to dentists. I sell a lot oh, to dentists, oh, actually. Yeah. Um, and, it's, uh, like a, it's like a temporary. It's a like, temporary yeah, fix. Yeah. It's not as good as an implant. It's right. a plastic tooth. But from three feet away, you can't tell the difference between mm-hmm. it and your normal teeth. And... Anyhow, um, I got a patent on it in 2017, and I, I, you know, I stumbled through this thing because I, I packaged several different forms of it that didn't sell as well as the item that I have now. You progress. What you start with, and, you know, I have to tell, educate entrepreneurs on this all the time. What you start with is not what you're going to finish with. You're going to, you know, you're going to make it better. So don't think it's, it's one. That's 100%. That's so right. And they, and, and, but they're so in love and blind of what they're doing that they don't see what reality is, you know, and you can't let it do that. So anyway. And um, if you don't, if you don't evolve, if you're not growing, you're dying. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? You don't stay you the same. Some very of the, long. You think about some of those old com- companies like Blockbuster and things like that who mm-hmm. just never evolved and changed yeah. with the times and, and died. Yeah, know? I actually lost a bunch of money when Blockbuster. <laughs> they, they owed me a bunch of money when they when they went under. <laughs> well, uh, I owed them a bunch of money when they, they went under. So. Yeah, okay, well, thank you. You got <laughs> leaving that out. <laughs> so anyway, I got a patent on this temporary tooth replacement kit in 2017. And... Um, you know, um, I sell a denture repair kit for fixing dentures. I invent different things. And um, anyhow, um, when the pandemic was getting ready to hit and I saw it coming, I went to uh, the state's attorney, showed him my denture repair kit, showed him a denture reline kit and said, well, you know, if, you know, if you're an old person and your denture breaks, what are your options if you want to eat, right? You have to fix this thing, Right. So here's my denture repair kit. I sell it to over over 900 pharmacies in the United States. They're all essential. Why wouldn't I be essential? He mm-hmm. said, I agree, you're essential. Okay. <laughs> nice. So that was it. So yeah. we, we, we wouldn't be shut down. So then you don't know this, but you have to stay in the game, you know, and that's so much of, that's so much of success in business is people just staying in the game, you know. Don't give up. Just stay in the game. And um, so in the middle of this pandemic, they shut down all the dentist offices in the United States, right? So you have millions of people with teeth missing. Mm-hmm. What do they do? They go to the internet. They look up temporary tooth. Well, wow. who's got a patented temporary tooth? So my company grew 35% during the <laughs> pandemic. <laughs> nice. 35% we grew. There was several. I had to hire two more people just to, just to drive the shipments of these things to the post office. There were several days where we had truckloads of little tiny boxes of temporary uh-huh. teeth going to the post office. That's amazing foresight right there. Yeah. yeah. It really is. And, and it, it, it comes from adapting and using your strengths 
And it, you know, I didn't see, I, I never would have thought in a million years that we would make money because they would close dentist offices yeah. down in the United States. I mean, who, who would have thought that? Yeah. But you don't get that luxury if you don't stay in the game, right? Yeah. And you don't diversify. And so I think, you know, once again, you don't know what opportunity looks like. You know, you know how to give 100%. You choose to every day or not to. And when you do, seldomly people say, man, I wish I hadn't worked so hard, right, at my business. Um, so speaking of diversifying, so you've done that a lot up there at your at your property. Mm-hmm. Um, you guys have started a like you guys have is it the White Tails Lodge? Yeah, I have a I have so a lodge and I have a barn wedding venue. Now, now what is it? The lodge hunters can come in, mm-hmm. stay there, hunt yeah. your land. Yeah, I've yeah. got I've got a couple thousand acres mm-hmm. in Calhoun County, and uh, I have a, a hunting outfit called Illinois Trophy Bow Hunters that runs the hunters on my property, and um, and. I uh, have a renovated 1860s barn. We do barn weddings, and I have a huge historic hay shed next to it that we have a, res- a reception hall. And I've tried, uh, I just this last year, I opened up a deer processing plant. I, I read that, yeah. In, uh, in my county. I was, in, I was able to employ six people there uh, through the fall. So just more commerce and more business and more uh, value to Calhoun and more jobs. And, um, um, you know, it just, it's just opportunity. We, I've been... We're buying houses and fixing them up for Airbnb, and my wife and kids get to work with this stuff, and they like doing it, and it it works. And I just keep growing my business and adding products that are utilitarian in purpose. So I, my last invention that I just launched is called the Fly Lid, and it's a lid. Sar- that t- Sergeant Margaret told me about this. She ordered some. <laughs> Did my, my mom? Yeah. Oh yeah, <laughs> our mom. For, well, because he has the 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 outdoor seating out yeah it's you know yeah well they were great and so uh um you know i was i was i was um traveling in my truck and i had a cup of coffee from quick trip or wherever and i saw a fly land on the lid and crawl down the hole you drink out of and then crawl back out and so it kind of gave me the idea that you could trap flies in cups and then throw them away when it gets full they couldn't get back out and what a great vessel for you know, because everybody throws these cups away, mm-hmm. you know. And so uh, you have like an inexhaustible resource of, of containers. So I had Oh, so to, you take the lid. You just use it. Yeah. You don't give You don't provide them the cup. You're no. providing them the lid. Yeah. Yeah. I will uh, I got one right here. I'll show it to you. See ya. Here's what it Here's what it looks like. It's just ah, a little tiny green, so green plastic lid. You, you, and so, so here's my coffee cup. Yeah. So, so you can put it right on there. No, it goes oh, upside ah. down. It goes the other brother. way. Some fly catcher you are. So yeah, <laughs> so it has it has it has all these steps. Different on it. levels, yeah. yeah. Wow. Ah. So so if you if you had coffee with cream in it, uh, or sugar, or soda, or something, you would leave this on the corner of your kitchen, or put it if if you have a nap problem, you pour red wine or beer in it and put it underneath the bar, and it, we sell a lot to bars. As a matter of fact, I'm doing the Bartenders Association show in Vegas with this product, and so. Uh, so once it gets full, you just throw it in the trash. Yeah, it's made out of recycled plastic. I make it up in Woodstock, Illinois, close to Wisconsin. Well, I've, you wouldn't throw. Would you throw the lid away? The you lid. could. Yeah, you could. Or they're, they're they're inexpensive. Or you know, if you wanted to, if the lid wasn't too nasty or whatever, you could put it back on another cup. Gotcha. Some people reuse them. Some people throw them away. They fit on a. They'll fit on a small Starbucks cup all the way up to a red Solo cup. And um, you know, it's just it's just a inexpensive thing i've made a million units already out of my factory and this and, is fairly new yes yeah, it's, it's my latest product that gotcha. i'm launching um so 
Yeah, they sell for. I swear, mom, mom bought them. <laughs> did you really? My mom did. Yeah, uh, it brings <laughs> brings a tear to my eye to hear that. Oh, that's that's amazing. Yeah, and that she really... the reason she told me I I we just started the patio last summer out yes. there really, mm-hmm. um, and so I I was going and buying those same concept, but they came with the bag underneath. Yeah, them, it smelled like shit. Yeah, they're, they're terrible. Yeah. yeah, so it's like you walk, we're like, oh my god, and mm-hmm. my people didn't love them, but yes, had to do something with the flies. You had to you get know, having of... people come and spray, but it doesn't yeah. work. So um, my mom saw those, yeah. ordered them. She's like, hey, you need to yeah. look into this. You don't have to do the smell. And <laughs> yeah, I know you don't you don't smell the flies in the cup, and then um, and then uh, like I said, it's very dis- indiscreet. You know, you just put a, put it on a Starbucks cup or something or other. And then set it around, um, you know, put it around your kitchen or wherever you have flies buzzing around. You know, uh, it's, I'm making, uh, I'm actually making another version of this for a five-gallon bucket right now. <laughs> so it's going to be my next your, product your line. your Calhoun peeps? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sell to dairy farms and yeah, horse farms and things right, like that. Right, So, yeah, it's just, it's just growing. I, I've, I've made, I don't know, I've made over 500 different items. Um, but this is the first product that I've made in the United States since 1998. So, uh, you know, I kind of, you know, I've been wanting to do that, to mm-hmm. bring it back here and to make something here. And, you know, it's, um, we're making them out of recycled plastic. My packaging comes from St. Louis, from Cavalier Packaging. So I'm keeping it all of it local and uh, employing people in Harden to staple them together and Amazing. ship them. Yeah, so it's it's pre- pretty cool. You know, it's, it's, um, it's you know, trying to, it, you know, the idea of just making something to make a dollar isn't that attractive to me anymore. It's yeah. kind of like taking the... the, the, the the level up a notch or two. Um, let's ask him some of our regular questions. Uh, so I'll start. I'll start. Okay, go Mount, ahead, Mount Rushmore. Picking up on some of my notes. Obviously, just through your ventures to the world, I mean, talking about Australia, going back to Wyoming where your parents met, mm-hmm. talking about some of the different places. What are the most interesting places that you've traveled to? Oh, wow. Give me four of them. Your four top. Ooh, that okay. if our listeners, if you could give them, hey, these okay. are some places okay. that I was fortunate enough to go check out. Okay. You guys should do it. I'm going to give you places that your people could actually go to. Okay. Um, the first one, I would say, not in any specific order, Machu Picchu uh, in Peru. Uh, went there with Honey Buns last October. We hiked the Inca Trail. And then we went, uh, took three days, about 35-mile hike. Uh, in about 12,000 foot altitude, which isn't too bad. And then we uh, descended down to Machu Picchu, to the ruins. But the whole entire hike is around the Inca ruins. And, you know, Peru is a very poor country. A person can do this for under $3,000. Uh, we, you know, we, we stayed, you know, we, we camped in backpacks. We could have gone cheaper than we did. And it was less than $5,000 for both of us to do this. And this is a, this is a thing of a lifetime. So... The people that say, oh, you know, you have all this money and you can do these things we can't. Well, this is one of those things that you can do. And, awesome. I'm, and I'm telling you, and do it the way I did it. Um, you, you go online and you, you pay a company that will porter your, you can't do it yourself. You have to pay local people there to, to carry your stuff and you want them to do this anyway. And um, we went, we, we went on the off season in October. So the winter is starting there. And it, it gets pretty cold when, when, when we're there, but there was absolutely no other hikers on the trail. So it's almost like you're back 700, 800 years ago wow. looking through this stuff. And I'm, I mean, it was, I'm telling you, it wasn't, I'd, I'd recommend both you guys to do this too. It's not that much money 
for you're going to get something out of this. You're going to remember the rest yeah. of your life. And it takes a week out of your time to go do it. And it's it's well worth it. You have to fly into Lima and then jump from Lima over to Cusco and then stay a little bit of time in Cusco. Everything is so cheap. Dinners four or five dollars. You know I mean, it's it's cheap. Take a train. Um, great, beautiful, beautiful thing to do. Great start. Yeah, a great start. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm a huge fan of road trips. I'm a huge fan of driving. I don't like to fly when I don't have to, and when I do fly, it's because I don't have an alternative. So, I'm a huge fan in trying to pick out a place in the United States and pick it out for next year or six months from now and decide I'm going to go to this island and I'm going to camp. Or I've done uh, Isle Royal up in, up, in Mount, up in Lake Superior. It's pretty incredible. I went there, uh, I went there after college and backpacked across uh, Isle Royal, about 25 miles hiking across there. But I drove all the way up there and took a ferry over to it. And, um, you know, my, it's just, it's an, it doesn't cost any money. It costs you $25 for a camping pass. And then it costs your gas to get there, which today is a little more than what it was when I did it. But, <laughs> but that's a different story. But anyway, <laughs> but anyhow, um, it's things like this. And don't, don't try to do this next month or next week. Try to do this next year. Yeah. And, and, and then you plan on this and you think about, what 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 backpack am I going to take? What sleeping bag am I going to take? Plan this thing out. Take your schedule and mark out a week and then go do it. And then if you do that once a year, do that investment in you and you and your wife or you and your best buddy or whatever. Um, I'm in August. I'm supposed to go, supposed to go to a cabin, which I've been to once before with a friend of mine from business. Um, I'm driving to Thunder Bay, um, Minnesota, and then I'm getting on a float plane. Now, this one costs a little bit of money, but I'm spending it with a friend of mine that I've had from business for 20 years, so I can write this whole thing off. And, um, and you know, I do a lot of business with this individual, and I'm, you know, when, when I fly, you're talking to the cheapest guy in the room. I mean, I fly <laughs> the cheapest way I can. I've never flown first class in my life. And, and you know, I I spend, but when you get somewhere. Is it is it called Thunder Bay? Thun, Thunder Bay, yeah. Um, but when you get somewhere, then spend a little money to see the, where, where you're at. And the days of me going to a trade show, flying there, seeing a trade show, making money, getting in my taxi or uber getting back to the airport flying home those days are over when i go someplace now i see this place i take a day and if i can i pay someone um that i that i find on the internet to give me a tour of this place i took a sales team uh, right before the pandemic i took a sales team to an oral care trade show as you know i sell oral care products now uh, i uh, we did an oral care trade show in barcelona spain Never been there. So, you know, you can spend money, do business. You know what? Why don't you do it somewhere where you want to see it? So I'd never been to Barcelona, Spain. Now, one of the places that I had on my list to check off was Rome. So we then had a layover for a day in Rome. Well, when I get to Rome, we had, I had already lined out, or actually one of my employees had lined out a travel agent to pick us up who was from there. A local person that they found online paid the guy three hundred dollars 
Now, I, I, I brought two of my employees and myself. We went and saw so much incredible things in Rome. Rome is one of my most favorite places on the planet, and it always has been. And I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm actually going back on a cruise with my wife. There is something to do, cruises. So my wife and I are taking a cruise a, a little over a year from now. We're, we're, we're leaving from Rome. We're going to go through the Greek Isles and to, and to several places in France. I probably won't get off in France because I don't care for that place. But, but, um, but, but Greece is incredible. Rome is incredible. And um, this whole entire cruise is going to cost $5,500 for me and my wife. Now, that sounds like a lot of money. You have a year and a half to save this money, right? And we're going to have that for five and a half thousand dollars. You're going to have ten days of traveling, all your meals. You're going to have you're you're going to have a. I could have gone cheaper, but on the ship we have an ocean, um, you know, balcony, which you really want. You don't want to be on a ship in one of those interior rooms. Yeah, and then it's going to be seeing these incredible places. You know, so you're talking, what is that? You know, $150, $200 a day a person? Like for meals and transportation and drinks and Wi-Fi? And so what I would say is, you know, I've been to some incredible places. And, and I, I mean, I really have. I've All through Asia. I haven't been to Russia yet. But, you know, Denmark, all, I mean, all over South America. Um, but... Really, there's so many incredible places everywhere. What I would tell people to do is to just think and to just, you, you know, we all, you know, this is like this is like the carnival down here. I mean, you all, we, we only get one ticket. So really the decision is, is how are you going to spend that ticket, right? Because, yeah. you, you, you know, you might get another one. Who knows? You know, on the reincarnation deal, who knows? I don't. But all it's guaranteed is the one you got in your hand. So take some time. Think about, you know, think about where you'd like to go and what you can afford. And then do things. You know, my, my wife and I, two years ago, we hiked the Grand Canyon in uh, the last week it was open in late October. And it was freezing cold. There was nobody there. We hiked the Kaibab Trail. Um, my, wife, my wife was just scanning it because she wanted to run the rim to rim to rim she actually she's an ultra marathon runner she's one of the top in the world she's actually the top 100 runners female runners in the mm. world and um anyway um and that's another beautiful thing that i've done is i inspired her to go out and run and to do these uh, these things and let them bring us to the world to see the world so this last ultra marathon that she did was in zion national park i'd never been there so we spent two days in Zion because she ran a 60-mile ultramarathon. It was supposed to be 60 <laughs> miles. It was actually crazy. She was actually probably going to win it. 1,800 people. She was in the top five. And at one of the water stations, a volunteer sent her down the wrong trail. She wanted running <laughs> nine miles extra. Oh. You see, you feel like that happens a lot at these Kuiper races. Yeah. I mean, yeah. they, they yeah. get these non-paid volunteers. <laughs> yeah. That don't Is that, isn't that something? <laughs> does, I, yeah. So, so, so she, 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 uh, trained to do the 60 miler and she figured that she had to leave at five 30 in the morning to, to arrive at the finish line before it got dark. Uh. And so, um, she was in fifth place 
when they sent her down the wrong trail. So instead of it being two miles to the next water station, it was 11. And it was 11 with an incline the entire oh way. My and so she wound up running an extra nine miles, and she came in fifth place <laughs> in, 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 out of the women. She, she would have easily won it. Right. But anyway, but you know what? That's life. I was happy for her. I, I heard her cry. I carried her to the car afterwards, uh -huh. and, and, and off we went, and she's ready to do it again. But, but, like, but, but you know, to see Zion, you know, um, that, what did that cost? That cost $2,000 for two people. I mean, who can't afford that if you're if you're going to save for a year plan, yeah, to yeah. do this? That's right. the that's the key, Ross. Maybe, maybe not eat every meal out. That's what whatever. I'm saying. Been, People know. can do so much more than they than they can if they plan for it, and and see incredible places. And you know, I I might not never see Zion if I hadn't inspired her to run mm -hmm. and, to, and then to take it up a notch and to run marathons and then take it up a notch and to run ultras. And um, she's. This October, she's uh, in the World Championship Ironman in Kona, Hawaii. She's competing in that one, and uh, she did. She competed in the World Championship Half Ironman in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. That's how I saw South Africa for the first time. Was with her. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's uh, it's 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 just a lot of incredible places all over the world. But there's so much here in the U.S. You just have to. I mean, some of the most incredible places I've seen have been in this country, but. You don't see them like everybody else sees them, or you get the same thing out of it that they do. You, you do it different. Do it yeah. your own way yeah. and rough it. And don't be afraid to rough it. And don't be afraid to go in the off-season when people aren't there because it might rain or it's cold. You know what? Prepare for it, and then, you know, you're ready. Great advice. Now, do you know that he, like, at his house, they have bears and wolves and <laughs> skunks? You had and, said something about that uh -huh. when we were going over I, I mean it, it's not weird to like you know, like if you're um, we're facebook friends and i'll just see like oh he's out with rest i even know the name of his bear is nibbles he's out just wrestling with nibbles, nibbles yeah <laughs> now i think half the people watch it like oh look at this this he's wrestling with this cute bear and i think the other half watching okay at some point this bear is going to eat his face off <laughs> yeah i know yeah she's <laughs> right she's a she's a female look you know you, you run that risk with any of them and, and what is is and then you have like is it uh, a bison what is it is yeah it i've got american tonka? bison tonka, tonka? Yeah. i know the names of these animals yeah. it's just fascinating to watch you know see mm -hmm. these yeah. things yeah that's pretty cool i didn't know you watched you follow yeah, that yeah. so you, you have like wolves right yeah i've got 11 timber uh, i've got 11 wolves uh i've rescued all of them uh -huh. and uh none of them would be alive right now if i hadn't taken them and um and have uh the same with my bear nibbles she's uh, -huh. uh seven years old now she weighs about 500 pounds and then uh, Tonka, um, you know, his. I was meeting with the oral care buyer at Walmart in Bentonville, Arkansas, two years ago in the spring. And as I'm going into my meeting, I get a text from someone that I met at an exotic animal auction. They, and they said to me, do you want a baby bison? And I actually always have kind of wanted a bison. <laughs> who so I hasn't? Said, yeah, who hasn't? Yeah. <laughs> and so I said, you know, well, what is it, a boy or girl? And they said, I don't know. It, was ju it just was born. And I, well, why are you getting rid of it? Well, its mother doesn't produce milk, so her calf last year starved. So, uh, if you don't take it, there's a there's a beef farmer next door. He'll take it. He's uh -huh. he's offered me seventeen hundred dollars. If you want to pay me seventeen hundred dollars, you can take it. So, I kind of felt like you know I'd save this bison. So, where are you located? So he says we're in Hot Springs, Arkansas. So I looked on my GPS, and it was only like a three hour drive from where I was in Bentonville. So. After my meeting, I'm still in, I'm, I'm, I actually 
I was wearing Dockers that day. Mm-hmm. So actually, I'm I, so I, I'm in my 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 salesman clothes in my truck, and I drive down there and put this bison <laughs> in my passenger seat <laughs> and, and strap him in and drive him all. We get home at three o'clock in the morning. And now, what is uh, what does he weigh now? Or she? Uh, weigh, what does she weigh? He now? he. It's a male. Uh, I'm gonna put him about 800 pounds, and like he's about has half this, grown. Has this big like chain with like a giant <laughs> bell? That, like, it's, like a church, it's like a church bell hanging <laughs> off this thing. <laughs> and Jonah will pull up like I don't know if it's driveway or whatever it is. Like, and they know he's coming to feed. And dude, it's just like it's like Noah's Ark just landed, and yeah, they're yeah, all they're yeah. all climbing out. You know what I'm saying? Following yeah. him, following him down. It's it's fascinating. Yeah. It's fascinating to see. I love rescuing animals. It's a it's a great thing to do to you know the the true measure of success is giving back, and giving back can be a lot of different things, but fundamentally it's the same. And you're helping something or someone, and it's a great feeling, and it you know it makes the world a better place, and uh, and so rescuing animals is one of the ways I've I've done that, and um, and we have a lot. I don't know. We probably have 150, 200 animals. Running around there, and uh, yeah, a that's bunch. a food bill. A that's lot. a food bill. A lot. A food bill. Yeah. Now I see. That, do some places like give you like their their, their old food? Like, yes. Or something yeah, like that. Yeah. Like I had one 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 company out of um, St. Louis was good enough this last year to give me all of their discarded mm-hmm. food that didn't make the cut. A company uh, called Treat Planet, and um, they sell mostly dog food. And so, you know, I've got all these wolves and one hell, of, and some of the stuff they were feed they they that they had that what didn't sell, um, nibbles like these, these like these turnip <laughs> treats or something like this that you would have seen in a PetSmart or something, and they had boxes and boxes. I I think I took about ten tons of stuff from them, it's just old stuff that you couldn't that they couldn't sell, and uh, they had to get it off their books, and so. Yeah. My animals don't care. So, right. and every once in a while, like he'll give Nibbles like I don't know, like a handful of Fruit Loops or something. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Bears yeah. eating Fruit Loops oh, out of, she's out got of a, hand. She got a terrible sweet tooth. Yeah. <laughs> got a terrible one. And then there'll be a time when Nibbles goes and hibernates, and yeah. then we kind of like mm-hmm. you your Facebook kind of sh- show when uh, oh, yeah. Nibbles comes back out out of hibernation. <laughs> and she's hungry, yeah, and angry, yeah, yeah. She's uh, she's something. Yeah, I've had her since she was about the size of a football. Yeah. So yeah, some you know. Do they just get to roam your land? No. How do you separate them? No, I mean I have enclosures and stuff. I have a USDA inspector. I have a federal inspector. So I basically have a zoo permit. So I could have any animal I wanted. But uh, but the enclosures for it are specific. Okay. And so it's the same regulations that like the St. Louis Zoo would have. And you know my inspector comes out every year and inspects, and I have to have a vet that come out and and give the bill of health. I feel like when he says enclosure, you're kind of picturing these cages. No, I'm sure it's. When you you look at this thing, no, they're just. I mean, I don't know what enclosures he's talking about. But whenever I see these things, they're just roaming around and coming up to his truck. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, you have. There's a lot of fencing there. Let me tell you. I bet it's like Jurassic Park park out there <laughs> yeah there's acres and acres and acres for them to run and and uh yeah it's a uh, it's pretty it's pretty tough you know i had uh, i i got these arctic wolves dropped on my lap um someone that happened to me once yeah <laughs> terrible I, I, you it was insane yeah, i mean um so uh, this guy finds you know you know everyone knows something about me or whatever and so i get a text if i would rescue two arctic wolves that these people can't take care of anymore so i went to their place and they actually lived in jersey county 
and um, they had an enclosure built on the back of a double wide trailer, <laughs> big huge enclosure. And it wasn't big huge, but it was big tall fence. And um, they had these two Arctic wolves that they'd gotten as puppies, as as pups, but now they're about 160 pounds. Mm-hmm. And so these wolves wanted nothing to do with me, like you know, and um, so they we got them tranquilizers and they didn't do anything to the wolves they didn't knock them out or anything and so this this they're, couple they're built different yes <laughs> they they got different stuff in there this couple that has them they're they're older and they've moved out they moved out to another state so now there's no one to take care of these two wolves so um so they actually it was actually kind of sad they the last time i went to get them they asked me to bring a rifle in case i couldn't get them so that's that's kind of the point in the mm-hmm. game that these wolves had got to. So um, I was able to coax them. Well, the lady who had raised them as babies, I, I brought them about 10 pounds of hamburger. And they went down the basement of this double wide. It was built on a foundation. They went down the basement. The basement walked out, and they gave the wolves a little bit. But I do, I, if the wolves know something's up, they, they won't play with anything. So I parked way down the end of the road and walked up to the house, and um, and gave the gave them this hamburger, and then I left. These people had already had already moved out. There was no one living here. Yeah. So they go down the basement and they open up the door, and these and they start feeding these wolves, and they bring the meat inside, and the wolves come inside and they shut the door. So now <laughs> these wolves are in this trailer, and I had a uh, it's called a rabies stick. It's a big old pipe with a cable through it that mm-hmm. you pull on. It goes around their neck. So I had this rabies stick. So I said, said to the, this couple, get these two wolves, you know, in different rooms. So they did. So I so then so then I said, come out and get me when you have them in these different rooms. So they did. So then I went down in there. So the male weighs about 60, 160 pounds, and he was in this bathroom. So I opened this door <laughs> and look in this bathroom, and there's a pissed-off Arctic wolf, 160 pounds, looking at me in a, in a basement of a trailer. And I'm thinking, man, my ancestors would be so proud of me right now if they could see this right here. <laughs> yeah. I so so needless to say, when I put that th- that rabies stick around his neck, he jumped through the ceiling. Like uh, like uh, that that rabies stick saved my life. I mean, like this thing was insane, bouncing around. And um, anyway, so I I was able to get these two wolves with uh, not a lot of tact, but a lot of grunt work. I was able to get these two wolves in the back of a of a horse trailer and then take them up, and I built a couple acre enclosure and put them in there so uh, it's um they're you know right behind my house i hear them howl every night so yeah it's when the sun starts going down it sounds like marty style for his wild america at my place i mean it's i mean it's an, I mean, it's incredible i mean do you worry about them hurting him because i mean you're out you're petting the wolves yeah i mean, at I this point, I mean now i mean you, you talk about that story with the rabies stick but now you're petting them and you well know, hand feeding them sometimes well uh, things you know everyone's different so you know yeah. um some of some of these animals that i have are more dangerous than others so mm-hmm. you know you 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 have to like my bear for instance you know um i raised her since she was about 10 pounds but you know she could kill me at any point in time right so you know you have to you you can't just do what you want to do. It's up to what the animals want. Um, my Arctic wolves are completely wild, mm-hmm. and uh, there's no taming these things. Okay. And um, you have to have your head completely on a swivel when you go in there with them. I mean, they'll they'll kill you if they get the chance. I mean, they're they're that. Yeah. But my timber wolves that we have, 
they have a little bit of domestic dog in them. Uh, it was an illegal breeder in Hillsborough, Illinois, that was raising them and selling them online. And they got shut down, and then they turned them all loose. And some of them ran off to other counties and got shot and killed, but uh, animal control caught most of them. And so for months, they were bringing me wolves. <laughs> and it was insane. Yeah. It was insane. Like, was, I can't describe how crazy it is, not knowing if you're going to get one wolf today or two wolves or what. And... um so, um, and they were all, and, and they were all related and they're breeding them all together. It's, you know, people that make money off animals or something, you know, not my most favorite people yeah. out there. So, um, so I've got them all neutered and they live uh, right behind our house. And, you know, I go in there with them and pet them and feed them and play, roll around with them every day. And they're just, they're incredibly loyal animals. And I don't know, you spend a, spending time with animals that, that know you save their life is, uh, is kind of surreal you know they that that feeling that they owe their life to you and they they some of them forget it but some of them don't like those arctic wolves they just see you as a food source Mm -hmm. but these other ones that have some domestic dog in them they're they're just the most loyal awesome things i mean uh it's pretty i feel sorry for the person tries to break in our place i'll tell you that (laughs) right right (laughs) um what what advice would you give like a uh, a young kid, a high school kid, kind of trying to make it in the world, or wanting to become an entrepreneur, or start their yeah. own business, or. Well, um, I wrote a book. I'll give you. I'll give you guys both one. Uh, I wrote a lot about this in depth in this book. You know, I published about fifteen years ago or so. Mm-hmm. The the big advice, you know, the, the, the cliff notes of it, are um, to be smart, and. And to embrace hardship. Now, I am successful sitting here because of hard work. If I would have been a lazy person, I would not be here right now. I don't care how much skill or whatever. If 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 you're gonna make it because you're smart, you are so smart it's scary. Mm-hmm. Like the typical smart person isn't gonna make it. You know, there's a lot of them out there. Um, if you want to be exceptional, if you want what other people don't have. You're going to have to do something that they don't do. That's simple. But people don't get that. They want what someone else has, and they don't want to do what they had to do to get that. And then they feel oppressed or angry because they didn't get this. Well, you're never going to get this. There's a reason why Darwin was right. You know, So embrace that it's going to be difficult. Embrace that you're going to outwork people. That's the most impressive thing to me about Elon Musk. You know, I said him, I brought him up before. The guy works like a hundred hours a day. Like he, he, you know, it's one thing to have that much talent, which I don't have a fraction of the talent he has. But but he knows what hard work, what the end result of that is, and um, and what is hard work. People don't understand that either. Giving a hundred percent is not a physical term. It's an all-encompassing term. It, it's it's thinking about. Did I get that purchase order done? Two o'clock in the morning. It's it's waking up at, at seven thinking, did so and so get paid? Did I give them the bonus that, that I told them about two months ago if they did this? It it's not just, well, I'm gonna work past five o'clock tonight. Right. You know, that's hundred percent, you know. Or I worked forty seven hours last week. Okay, that that's a dumb person's hundred percent. a hundred percent is not leaving anything to chance. It's giving 100% about 
100% about everything that you possibly can. And things are going to happen that you don't see coming. You know, the, a real good fighter, they all get knocked out if they fight enough. But they get, the, the real good ones, they get knocked out if you watch them by the punch they didn't see coming. And that's what takes you out. That's what will take my business out. That's what will take your business out. It's someone got pancreatic cancer or or the FDA changed some rule or something, you know. You, you know, so you prepare yourself for that punch you don't see coming and you have the best tools. You still may not survive it, but at least you have a chance at it. And once again, that's giving 100%. People don't understand what that is. You know, I'm you know, yeah, business is going e-commerce people aren't meeting face to face you know all the growth in economy is in online stuff yeah i could tell you this stuff but you know you can read this stuff you know other people can tell you this stuff too other people can show you you know graphs that you know, i don't have that's not the secret right. you know that's what reality is that's what that's what the rules are you're playing with but you play different you're going to get a different result and you know when i say different don't strive to just be different. Strive to be better, and that is going to be different. But <laughs> right. if if you you know I'm gonna go get I'm gonna go get a nose tattoo or a, a nose ring. I'm gonna get my nose pierced so I can be different. Okay, well that guy's an idiot. You do that because that's what you want to do, not because you want to be different. You know, a lot of people say, well in business I would never settle. I would never do whatever. Well, I'm here to tell you. Never is a really, really long time, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, and, and you, know, you know, just understand that you don't know what you don't know. Pe you know, people don't, something so simple like that. You know, that helped my business so much when I adopted that and knew that these uppercuts were going to come that I'm not seeing coming and that you don't know what you don't know. And, you know, you're not always going to be the toughest guy in the room. So don't act like you want to fight because it, sooner or later it is not going to end well for you. You know, what are you gambling with? And so it just, you know, it's, it's very competitive and different. There's more money now in the economy than there was when I started. But the business and the economy is so different. I couldn't be successful to nearly a fraction of what I was if I did things now as I did then, if I didn't adapt. Hmm. So the new kids that are coming out that are fighting for, pull, pulling for position in business, um, you know, they have to be different. And they have, because there's so much of the same right now. And, um, but being different now, it's so much easier to make it than when I started. You know, people were kind of scared of it. You know, and now it's, you know, people like the idea of being different. People like the idea of not having to, look someone in the face or people don't want to shake your hand now you know it's that, that's you know it's what is that that's unsanitary now you, you don't do that right <laughs> yeah but i love in that i love what you said well what is hard work because a lot of people don't understand it's not just a physical thing no it's not just me no. being at my restaurant mm -mm. for 24 hours a day physically doing everything mm -hmm. it's also what i do mentally Mm -hmm. When I'm sitting here yeah. or when I'm at home and I'm laying in bed, I'm in the shower. I'm still yeah. thinking about all <laughs> yeah. those punches I don't see coming and mm -hmm. being prepared for those things. You, defining hard work so people understand it, it's not just a physical thing. No. Because the three of us, n our brains never stop. 
in what you said earlier with progression of our of our businesses, and that's part of the hard work. Yeah, right. you, you can't stop. You be different. Be different mm-hmm. is is doing those things right there. Why someone else is out drinking, mm-hmm. out partying. Right. You know, that's that's the be different part. Yeah. People don't realize when you own a business, you're never actually off. Yeah. Never. I don't ever feel like I'm no. off. I'm like you said, yeah. your brain you're is not always yeah. you're thinking, not always Matter thinking. Matter of fact, you're most productive sometimes when you're not here. Absolutely. Right. Exactly. Because when I when I, I go out when I'm like, well, I go like I go for a walk or a hike or something like that, that's when I'm I that's 100%. when my ideas and the creativity and stuff and, and ideas come to me. When when I uh, I said this earlier, I, I like to drive. And when I drive, it's almost a spiritual experience when i drive my truck i got a battle truck out there with a thousand pound front bumper on it (laughs) when i drive that thing i usually have silence in my truck i don't have any music playing at all now coming here this morning i was playing metallica but normally (laughs) i don't because i'm getting ready for you crazy guys so normally it's quiet in my truck and my and i just hit the reset button and whenever I go somewhere, even if it's going five miles to the store, it's an opportunity to learn something and to fix something that hasn't even happened yet. Yeah. And that's part of that giving 100%. And I actually enjoy that. It's almost like meditation, yeah. fixing things. And then I'm like, yes, uh, you know, on this trip to Jerseyville, I fixed this problem that hasn't even mm-hmm. happened that's yet. Exactly. Right? I know. Exactly and right. and it's problem solving, you know, 101 or, yep. or 1 million one. But you know, the thing is, once again, schools don't teach you this. You don't get a degree to teach you how to do this, you know. Giving 100% is what teaches you this, you know. And and looking for opportunity. And then, like you guys know, you know, when you have your business, your time is so married to this, whatever this baby is. It's I, I, I make the reference of the business being like a child. You raise, I did this in the book. You know, you raise it. You, you change his diapers and you hear it cry and wail and it dominates you and takes all your consumes all your time you can't make the damn thing happy you know you're trying so hard and you know it starts to act like it's happy and then it's not and damn it you know and i'm a terrible parent or i'm a terrible business owner and whatever and i make that connection in the book that it's like having you know your business if you're doing it right it's like raising that's a, a great, child that's a great analogy yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah it really is i know that really is ross we do a one-hour podcast yes and we just did a three-hour podcast but did you? Yeah. and i feel like we could just do another three <laughs> hours for sure <laughs> right for sure uh, yeah <laughs> man that, that was awesome first like you didn't know any of his story really no and and i just shut up and listen because that was that was amazing exactly that's how you know you have a great guest because good sauce there in there yeah you don't have to say anything so but we probably need to wrap it up all right even though i could just keep going and going and going man i I appreciate you coming in yeah yeah like we both know when you got especially a business like yours yeah you got a lot to do, so really appreciate you yeah. taking taking three hours of your time. Yeah, more, more than, than that, that for, like drive, for the <laughs> well, for everything. Really appreciate you coming in, I, man. I do want to say it was it was pretty neat seeing a little bit of your guys' world here. You know, seeing you guys grow up as little kids yeah. and being being the whole Calhoun Campsill thing, right. and and seeing the business you guys have created and seeing your pictures on your walls and your sayings and you know your tattoos and. And, and how you, you know, I, I, when I was sitting out here earlier watching your employees coming and going, you know, it's pretty cool seeing, and to me that's successful. It doesn't matter how much, what's in your bank account to me. You've, you've done what you want to do. You, you're your own 
you're in charge of your own destiny. You're your own boss, right? You can't say I'm a success or I'm a failure because there's this many zeros. You guys, you're a champion of your own world, right? And I've seen that from the beginning. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I really, I really liked it. You know, sitting out here or when I got here earlier, like you said earlier, watching your employees coming and going, and watching what they were doing and saying. You know, my mind's still working. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I see why that one's here. I see why that one's here. You know, so yeah. I appreciate it. You guys yeah. invite me into your little we, ecosystem. We I, I pictured Jonah getting up this morning and seeing what his secretary had put on his agenda. He's like, God, I gotta drive down to Bethalto. This freaking we're gonna mini- we're gonna have a talk about He's this. Like, I used to be. I was with. I had. I was on Dwayne Johnson, The Rock's reality show, and I'm going to what is this? Yeah. Eat, yeah. slay, live, yeah. live. What yeah. is that crap? I'm going to do. That's why we yeah. appre- that's why we appreciate it so yeah. much, brothers. So, All right, uh, anytime. Dang, what a show today! What a show! <laughs> Anyways, you're here with the uh, little post game analysis, real quick. Uh, Jonah White, that was uh, I took more notes. In that one show than I've taken in all the other shows combined. Well, I saw you over there writing, and you were writing a lot. There was and, some and lot was, of good stuff said. Yeah, and I'm like, are you just like doing your own, taking notes for the restaurant or something like that or what? But yeah, no, he's, there was a lot of good thing, man. That, that's an amazing story, right? <clears throat> amazing. I'm gonna hit a few things. Okay. Okay. The story of him moving to Rhode Island his freshman year. <laughs> Did not see that coming. No. And wrestled. <laughs> and, and how that kind of changed his life. He wasn't in the sports at all yet. No. And some random guy who came to see his son, who had happened to be the head of the school, sees him. I mean, he had to see something in the kid. Right. To even, hey, have you ever wrestled before? Well, I'm going to fly you out to Rhode Island. You're going to wrestle. I, I mean, Jonah, he said, wow, well, you know, I was just a skinny little kid. No, Jonah yeah. always looked like he was chiseled out of a rock. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Even and, when he wasn't big, and he the, still looked like yeah, he was The fact just, that this guy seeing that in him, I mean, I, and, I can imagine. He's, okay, he's 135, but he's probably, I mean, put and together. They looked, and like, they looked like little savages, like little yeah. Native Americans. Do you know what I'm saying? I'm sure that dude's like, oh, get this guy down. And probably Jonah was probably roughhousing with whoever was around at the time. Like, I could do something with this kid. Yeah. The way that he looks at life is is amazing. Mm-hmm. It's a different. I mean, he has a different outlook on life than I think we do. Yeah. Uh, um, and the it, way he puts it in perspective and tells that story, mm-hmm. he was a pro. <laughs> yeah. And yes. And and I love how like and he talks about his mom and you could and I kept saying that's yeah that from yeah, mom yeah. white but like like that like like she broke down things and kind of said pros cons what's the result what are you trying to do blah 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 blah. i i, I liked that a lot yeah you know what i'm saying it seems like he does that with every aspect of his life now, i'll hit these keys real quick that he just threw out that i think when people are listening to it you know maybe they go back and re- re- listening to it i think are, are big um timing is the key to life man that's so true he's such a self-assessor yes and then and i i think to be successful in this world you need to you need to have that characteristic you need to be able to look at yourself in the mirror every single day almost every single minute and be able to adjust and self-assess of what i need to do better or different or whatever um i I love this you don't get what you're he says you don't get what you're worth ross you get what you negotiate yeah i I saw you i saw you start scribbling then yeah um (laughs) opportunity looks a million different ways yeah was good um the self-confidence he has in himself he says i knew the business was going to be tough but i knew i was the best in the world for it Mm -hmm. and and like i said about him like when he was 
like when before he was a football phenom, before he was anything, when he was like that those those kids living in the in the the woods, he didn't carry himself like that. They, I mean, Jonah isn't like he's sort of famous. Do you know what I'm saying? And yeah. Still lives up there in Calhoun, but he's not beloved up there. He's really not. Do you know what I'm saying? Like you'd think he'd be, but because he's always had this. I don't want to. It's it's like an arrogance sort of. But it's but it's really it's a self confidence. Yeah, I'm the best. I'm going to outwork you. You can you can look at it as incredibly cocky, or you can look at it as this amazing confidence where he just knows he can do whatever he sets his mind to, and, and he, that intimidates some people. And you know what uh, I'm saying? Yeah. Especially in a small town like yes, that, a small it, area. Yeah. It, but uh, hey, him leaving here. I be- truly believe that dude has the mindset he's going to do whatever he puts his mind to. <laughs> I mean, yes. I don't know if I've ever really personally met somebody that made me have so much belief in that dude's doing whatever he can. I can understand why he was a stud football player because he had that mindset. He was going to be it. You know, like I said, I was a skinny little sophomore and that was a stud football team. They went to the state championship for, for a, you know, a Cal little school like that to make it all the state championship there. I mean, there was a stud and there was a lot of big guys on that team, but the intensity that Jonah brought, I, I can't describe it to you. Like those things I said, where he said at halftime in the locker room, I mean, I'm sitting there like, holy shit you know know what i'm saying (laughs) like he was just or maybe i was a freshman uh, he was just just brought this intensity and that that confidence like he give him the ball every single time and And that's really special in a player you know being in you know in sports my whole life Mm -hmm. coaching for 10 plus years there's not a lot of players from the from the college ranks when i was a player Mm -hmm. to even coaching Having a player be able to step up in the locker room and say something while the coaches are giving their speech, like, give me the ball, that's how we're going to win, you know, whatever, that's a special quality. And 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 not and there's not a lot of high school kids or college kids that are playing are going to say that during a, a halftime. Right. You know, and, because but, they have that much confidence in themselves. And, and like that, that thing that Coach John sent, he, you know, they had held every – Every no one had gotten over ninety yards against him. Not even a hundred. They hadn't gotten ninety. They hadn't gotten ninety. And he tells Jonah, "We're going to make sure you get a hundred. Jonah's like, "I'm going to get two hundred. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And he got just short of three hundred. And the only reason he didn't get three hundred because they took him out because they were winning the game. I I to look back at that, like if my coach would have pulled me aside and said, "Ross, we're going to make sure you get thirty, I would have been like. Okay, coach. Okay, not yeah. not come back like no, coach. I'm getting fucking forty. That's like the, well, the, yeah, the, no. say the team you're playing in basketball. They'd held every person under a nineteen points or eighteen points, and you and he's going. I'm going to get you twenty. You're not going to come back and say no. I'm getting thirty. Probably not. And you're confident. Yeah. I mean, that's All just, right, coach. Let's do it. You know something it, like that, uh, man. That's that's we, that's we think of ourselves as intense and and competitive, but there it's another see, level. That, that is really another. It's another no, level, man. Yeah. And, um, you know, when he comes in here, he's got what? What was the hat he was wearing? <laughs> oh, uh, he, man! I, I said something about it. He said he said something. It's uh, <laughs> what do you say? It's a, a hat you um, someone from Africa had given it to him as a gift, and he said it, the person told him wear the hat when you're going to do something adventurous. Oh, that's that is what he <laughs> said. That's right. It looked like part samurai, 
part maybe uh, working in a rice paddy, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, it was kind of like wicker sort of made or something, but yeah. He, Fit he, him well. Yeah, it did. So, so. man, we, we are, again, we are, you and I are blessed and to be able to like just sit down and have conversations with people like him and all the people we've had on our podcast that, that bring stuff, bring stories and journeys and uh, lessons to us, right? Yep. A lot of lessons in that, a lot of great stories. Um, hope you guys enjoyed. Thanks for listening. This has been the Eat, Slay, Live podcast. And we are the Locksecutioners. Slay on, brother. Slay on.